The Solid 7 Podcast is a proud affiliate of GORUCK. GORUCK designs and builds the toughest gear on the planet, tested and proven at thousands of GORUCK events held all over the world and led by current and former Special Forces combat veterans. The GORUCK brand stands for building better Americans, the Special Forces way of life, and a life-or-death approach to building the world's toughest gear. Visit Solid7Podcast.com and click on the GORUCK link to learn more about their gear and events and a portion of every purchase and every event registration you make will go to support us here at the Solid 7 Podcast. Well, hello world and welcome back after two long weeks to the Solid 7 Podcast, a better than average podcast. If I do say so myself, this isn't a show about nothing, but it's also not a show about any one thing. Each week, I like to get together with a guest, talk about whatever is going on in the world that interests us. And this week, it is my pleasure to welcome back the one and only Dr. Ryan Banting. Welcome back, buddy. Hello, my friend. How are you doing? I completely forgot that we were going to do this today until you texted me saying I'll be on in two. <laughs> Dude, we, uh, like, um, I touched base with you because we had talked about doing this today, and it, some of the details were still a little soft based on, you know, like, we, we addressed this last time you were on. You're, you're a, a doctor, doctor. Uh, is there a doctor on this plane, doctor? Yeah, not actual a, not, physical not physician. A, yeah, not a, like, I overpaid to learn about insects, doctor kind of thing. And uh, so, you know, that that's a, a tricky schedule. But then even after that, like even after solidifying things, uh, same thing. I was home this evening and it dawned on me at one point, like I'm just in the groove of, you know, husband, father stuff. I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm uh, recording a podcast, recording a podcast tonight. So yeah, I, was, both- uh, I was watching. Do not mention the score if you happen to watch it. But I was watching the World Cup on replay because I keep missing them because I've been on the, you know, this long run of working and trying to watch games spoiler free at home at night after a long shift. And um, there's still 20 minutes left in the USA Iran game. So, uh, again, don't you dare ruin that for me. I'll physically hate you. Hey, uh, hey, hey. if there's anything we've learned from this World Cup and, and the press conference the other day, it's not I- Iran. All right. It's Iran. <laughs> I don't know how to pronounce things. So yeah. no offense meant no, to no anyone. Right. There was uh, an uh, Iranian uh, reporter who corrected the uh, the captain of the uh, U.S. soccer team in his pronunciation of oh, okay. Iran, which I now, just out of spite, will only say as Iran. <laughs> that, uh, is, that is certainly an approach, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Let him teach him. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just like, well, it was a little, it was, I mean, I get it, but it was, it's not like he was mispronouncing your, your name. Um, it was just a little pedantic. And so it feels mock worthy. It, it, it seems strange to me in the middle of a world cup uh, interview where you're talking about the most important sports event in the last four years that, you know, you get 10 seconds to ask a question that matters during a press conference of a, of a player. And the main thing you need to do is just correct, correct pronunciation um yeah. I, you know it, it seems like it could be a text later on or something like that but or a twitter yeah. mention well, or something. and in in fairness because we're nothing on this podcast if not intellectually honest this wasn't like just a like just another soccer game this wasn't even like just another world cup game this this isn't quite you know like miracle on ice status this isn't like 
peak cold war, we're going to take the Ruskies down in their preferred format. Um, but, but there was a little bit like, you know, we're going to, I mean, we're going to beat Iran. There, there's there, some, there is some emotion yeah. on many, many sides to the Iran, Iran, yeah. uh, the Iran, uh, USA game. You know, when you yeah. look, I think if I was listening to some of the stuff correctly, like they've never made it out of group. Um, and certainly, you know, we had a less than ideal last couple of years. Um, so, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a big thing. Yeah. Yeah. So, well, we'll, we'll, we'll talk some soccer today, but before we go too much further, let's, uh, let's do this podcast, right? Because we are, of course, as always fueled by Jocko go. And, uh, this week is, is no different. So cheers, sir. <laughs> and, uh, and you look, uh, I'm not going to lie. Uh, I could you know, use some I, Jocko Go. <laughs> I was going to say, if I, if I had a member of the fairer sex on, I, I might not make this comment because Lord knows a lady, uh, you know, they tend to not be fond of hearing, you look really tired or you look a little run down, but you, sir, in fact, do. Uh, I look do. A That's fair. That's fair. Accurate. Oh. You know, the, the assessment is astute. Yeah, I have, uh, I think, you know, we had Thanksgiving all, we closed the clinic on, on Thanksgiving, but I, I have been on, you know, I think what, like six of the last seven days, 12 hour shifts, uh, kind of running around doing patients and stuff like that. So, um, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm at the end of my, my run, I get two days off and, um, and then Aren't I go back on be, like, if there's anything I've learned from scrubs, it's that you're not supposed to have to do that kind of crap after once your residency's over, what's what gives. Uh, well, uh, you know, I'm whining all about this particular week, but I agreed to cover some shifts from somebody, and I'm not whining about the week off I'm going to have the week after. So <laughs> my life is not hard. <laughs> it just That's comes fair. in spurts. That's all. Uh, you know, you got to pay the piper some way. Yeah. Well, now, like, uh, you know, I'm not looking to do an all-medical episode, though, of course, as always, I'd like to, uh, you know, take free advantage of your very expensive expertise uh, while we have you here. Um, it's part of the fun of having a doctor on the podcast. But, um, you know, you hear in the news uh, a lot right now, uh, again, uh, we're, we're, we're all going to die. I don't know if we're all going to die again or still, but there's a, 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 a triple-demic uh, going on, I've seen stories that um, the next the next strain of COVID, as per usual, will be the worst one yet. Um, and so, uh, but you know, flu, RSV, uh, COVID. We're told everything's popping off right now. It's busier than it's ever been. There's no kids' hospital beds anywhere. Uh, so, as somebody as legit frontline boots on the ground. Um, like I, I think, uh, you know, we're not going to talk about where your, your practice is and the name of your practice or anything out of, you know, deference to, to you and your patients or whatever. But I think we're okay to say that you work in a, in an urgent care system. Yeah. 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 And so, I mean, like as frontline as it gets these days, I, yeah, I, I see, I, I see I, a lot of the, um, I, I'm still breathing, but I'm certainly sick enough. And if I got sick overnight or something like that, um, the way American healthcare is set up, a lot of times, if you are sick, you're not going to be able to see your family doctor that day. They don't tend to have a ton of appointments just lying around. And so a lot of times you call your family doctor at 10 o'clock in the morning and you say, hey, I don't, I don't feel good. Can I come in and see you? The answer is cool. How about next Thursday? Um, and, uh, and so often you end up talking to me. Yeah. And so like, are, are you, is, uh, you know, I don't think, you know, it's not exactly, you know, standing on the rooftop, hollering fake news, fake news, 
um, to say that the news tends to overhype any given topic, right? That's whether it's national news, local news, written, you know, whatever, like they've, they need eyeballs. They, they need clicks. So, you know, what is the clinic any, any busier, like are stats any higher than any normal fall winter season? Um, number of patients coming in and saying, Hey, I don't, I, you know, I feel sick enough to want a doctor's test for a couple of things, a medicine that might make me feel better or a work note type stuff. Um, to me, it seems just as you know heavy as it ever was. It's not like some magical four times what it used to be or anything like that. Um, I, you know, anecdotally, I'd probably say I'm seeing, I'm making up a number here off the top of my head, somewhere in the range of 10 times as much flu as I am COVID, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, I'm not sending near the number of, and, and the, the number of COVID patients that I see who I think have to be admitted to a hospital immediately is dramatically lower than when I was working in a hospital and clinic at the same time. You know, I was in residency when COVID first hit. And those first couple strains, you know, if you were 50 and, or, or you were, you know, 60 or 70 and you came down with COVID, I was legitimately wondering if I'd be able to talk to you alive in a month. Right. You know, th there was at some point we, we really thought there was, you know, 30 percent mortality rate or something for folks. Um, this strain just doesn't anecdotally seem to be anywhere near that. Uh, so a lot of folks get COVID and stuff. But um, it seems to me RSV is 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 kind of really hitting the kid population. You know, if you're a if you're a smaller child, RSV is real rough. And a bunch of those yeah. folks are in the hospital right now. Um but for the average adult, RSV isn't that big of a deal. Like it's, it's statistically, you know, you feel bad, but it doesn't tend to be dangerous to adults for the most part. To the yeah. point where if you don't have a child in your life, um, if you come in and you're mildly sick and you have the ability to kind of not breathe on people, or you, can, you can somewhat distance them from you. I don't generally recommend that adults need to test for RSV in any way, shape or form. It's not going to really change their medical treatment at all. Um, you know, if there's a kid in your life that you would avoid extra, if you knew it was RSV, sure. Yeah, absolutely. Tool. Or if you're just intellectually yeah. curious, also fine. But like medically, well, for, medically for the average adult, there's no reason to test for RSV. Yeah. Well, it's like our, our, we've got a great pediatrician group, uh, you know, near us that the, both our kids have been at their whole lives. And, um, you know, I've got a five-year-old and a three-year-old. They've both been in for things pretty much every year of their lives. That could have been RSV. I can't tell you that it was because they don't test for it. Yeah, they if, always... you're not, if you're not hospital ready uh, or, you know, or risk of hospital based off how bad you're acting, uh, there's not a whole lot of difference to treat for. Like, so, like, I don't even recommend, uh, you know, a healthy eight-year-old with, with a mild cough or a runny nose or a fever. Um, I don't do RSV. I won't recommend RSV testing. I won't deny yeah. it to parents who want it uh, for whatever reason. You know, we all have our own value systems and stuff like that. But I don't, I don't push it as, like, medically necessary in any way. Yeah, that's, you know, they mostly it seems to me like the cue, at least in our pediatricians is, you know, they do the typical, you know, they're listening to their lungs and stuff, which is the only reason we take them in when they have symptoms that could be that. Because we know, we, we just want to make sure their lungs are clear, right? Because when they've like, got does the crazy... Does this kid sound like they're safely breathing, right? That's, yeah, that's it, what you know, need. Yeah, and so, and it seems like once they hear clear breathing, that's when they're like, it's the same spiel every time because they talk to so many parents, they forget who they've given the spiel to before. Like, yeah, it seems like, you know, 
a respiratory virus. The lungs are clear. Um, you know, there's a virus called RSV. It could be something like that. I mean, that's what every time that's, that's the spiel. Um, you know, and they send us on our way. Like, you know, if they get a little, if they're acting uncomfortable or lethargic, if you want to do some Motrin or some Tylenol, you can do that. If they seem fine, don't worry about that either. And they'll be, you know, they're good to go. And it's, and it's no factor. And what we actually, the kids cycled through something here recently. Um, and uh, it ended up kind of getting uh, the wife and I both in the kids. We, we went to the doctor. I want to say for, did we go for both of them? I don't even know. I don't know. It all blends. Uh, but they're, they're fine. They were fine. Of course, nothing was in their lungs. But it got me in the way. And who knows if I caught what they had, if I picked something else. Uh, who, who knows, right? Um, which is the point. That's how we used to live. Right? Who knows? Um, yep. You could get it from anywhere. But Like, are I you safe? Can... Okay. Well, if you're sick, probably don't cough on people. Okay? Yeah. See you later. <laughs> Let yeah. us know if it gets worse. And so I got on like a Monday afternoon, evening. I had kind of a scratchy throat. Next, next morning, it was like sharp pain. I'd rather spit than swallow kind of pain, right? Uh, you know, whatever, no factor. I do some, some zinc launches, lozenges, you know, I pop some high dose C. I make sure I'm good on vitamin D. If I'm not going to be outside, we're, we're going to carry on, right? I might, uh, you know, do a little mouth tape that, that night, run a humidifier, you know, keep things moist, keep things from drying out, whatever. Well, it was, it was pretty persistence i'm like well crap you know if i am strep if it is strep let's go get something and deal with this because that's the only symptom the only thing going on uh you know i've got the little finger thing i well and i've got uh, you know a series seven apple watch oh two sats are fine my breathing's fine my temp is fine everything's fine i just have a sore throat so i'm like oh, i'll go get a test so i went to wait for it an urgent care um and uh it was funny because, you know, I, they've got, you know, little whatever. I don't even think it was a nurse came in to, the, you know, the vitals and all that stuff. All right, somebody be back in to see you. And then I can't remember if it was the PA or a tech or what comes in. They're like, all right, we've got a COVID test here for you and a strep test. And I just kind of chuckled. I'm like, we don't need that COVID test. You don't, you don't want to test for COVID? And I, I, you know, like, I don't want to be mean to this little girl who's just doing her job. But I'm like... There's no reason on God's green earth for me to take a COVID test right now. It's not going to change anything about the way I'm treated. All it's going to do is force me unnecessarily to change some other behaviors. No, I either have strep or I have a cold. Let's figure out which real quick. That is that's so crazy. Uh, I yeah. said, if if I was interacting face to face in close proximity with a bunch of people all day long at work, even with the little cough and sore throat that I had, I would have stayed home myself. But I largely sit in an office by myself most of the day, and if somebody enters my office, they're not right up on me. We yeah. run uh, we run a high end air purifier in the office. I keep a little fan in my office to keep air circulating, uh, and so I'm like, whatever I've got going on. I'm not getting any, nobody else is catching this from me mm -hmm. um, well, again. And, and I, I talk to people as well, even about flu tests. Um, and admittedly, I find Tamiflu to be a mediocre medicine if you look the, through the data on it. Uh, there's not a safety profile that most doctors find to Tamiflu uh, for most people. Um, if you're an otherwise you know healthy person who's unlikely to go to the hospital anyway, Tamiflu doesn't change your likelihood of going there in most cases. Most doctors would describe Tamiflu as a medicine that, by statistics, might reduce your symptoms by somewhere between, you know, maybe half a day to a day and a half or something like that. 
And so when I talk about like, okay, utility of doing a flu test, there's a couple reasons. Like one is, well, do you want one? And if you want a flu test, sure, you can have one. Would you buy Tamiflu? Okay, cool. Because if you would, then I have to do the test to be able to write it for you. And then like, would it change how you behave? Would knowing that you have the flu versus some other contagious illness, which you all, which we all know you have, if you are, if you knew just based off how you're behaving, if you knew that was flu, would it change something? And if those three things don't apply, there's not much reason to spend your money on a flu test if you're just being literal about it, right? Um, and, and I find that there is this – I don't know if COVID changed it where, where as soon as you sneeze, you're supposed to go get a COVID test, and that was like the thing for so long. But it really didn't used to be a deal where whenever you were sick – like you would, you would demand a doctor's visit just for, you know, being, cause we used to just, if you were sick, you were sick. And if you felt like you're in danger, you'd go talk to a doctor, right? Yeah. Or if it was going on way longer than you thought, but, but, uh, you know, two days of a runny nose would never prompt a doctor's visit for most people 10 yeah. years ago. Um, I know I, I remember being a kid and I did not get taken to the doctor for every random yeah. illness. <laughs> Well, not only that, but just so many of the behaviors that made sense when, and again, nobody's looking for another COVID episode, but like they just keep, it's hard, you know, if you're going to talk current events, not to talk this stuff, we just had, you know, Anthony Fauci just up at the White House podium, uh, again, touting some of these things and make sure you're, you know, whatever. I, I don't know how many boosters we're supposed to be on now. I, I'm not being sarcastic about that. I don't know. At this point, if you follow I can, their I can tell you the, um, the, the guidance now, for what it's worth, is um, that that new bivalent that, uh, that is you know, proposed to have more um, efficacy for the newer strains, the new bivalent, if your last COVID infection was more than 90 days ago, and your last booster was more than two months ago, they recommend you go get the new one. Those are the recommendations right now. I will acknowledge I have not gone to get mine yet, more out of laziness than, um, you know, particular political stance or or data stance. I haven't bothered looking into it yet, the actual data on this new bivalent one yet, um, because it uh, it honestly doesn't change a whole lot about my current life. Um, Now, who knows what will happen? You know, some... you know, you mentioned that the claim that the 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 next the next strain is going to murder us all. At some point, something's going to murder us all. The last I checked, we're all still going to die. Um, the the question is, you know, will the next strain do it? And I don't know that we can predict that enough that we should bother. I think there's a a certain amount of moral damage to assuming the next thing is going to murder all of us all the time. Like yeah. at some point, you you just have to live your life and just try and be a decent human and productive and live what days you have. And stop trying to predict the end of the universe. Yeah, my, I mean, my hope coming out of this thing as a, a parent of, uh, I don't think I get to say toddlers too much longer if I even get to still say it now at five and three, but certainly of young children, um, was that in general, if we came out of this thing and just everybody was more conscious of, you know, if I'm blowing snot all day long and coughing and whatever, Maybe I do take that sick day or maybe I don't subject my child's. I know it's an inconvenience for me, but maybe I don't subject my child's whole whole class to this. Yeah. Uh, but but like I only wanted a, a little bit of that because what I don't want, like all these things we've talked about, right? RSV, flu, you talked some about, uh, you know, what the um, mortality rate of, of COVID, what we thought it might be early on. And I remember those stats because I was, I was crunching and doing easy math because we all learned what R not was real, real quick. Yep. Uh, and then, you know, early on they were talking about a, a, um, 
just a, a potential for a real high mortality rate. Well, I'm going if you know if every person who catches this transmits it to they they, they were talking about an R not of like eight early on, um, which is massive. I mean that's like uh, it, uh, that's massive. Um, yeah, it's crazy. With a high mortality rate, I'm like, dang, we're going to see like millions of people that were dead from this. That was very early on, and then of course, um, the mortality rate is is tiny. Um, which we, which we know now and what we, what we know for sure now. Um, and I don't think there's, everybody likes to debate COVID, but I think everybody in the science community can agree that for like human beings, my children's age, the mortality rate for them is higher from the flu and from RSV than from COVID, than from COVID. I, I don't think there's any debate anywhere in the scientific community for that. And, and we've had a flu season every year. And we've had a run of RSV every year, at least for as long as I've had kids. So I know that's factual for at least the last five years, right? Um, but we don't, we didn't close the schools. We didn't, we didn't mask, we, you know, we didn't do all, all these things. So it's like, and I, I, I've made this comment on the podcast before. I probably made it last time you were on. But my, my, you know, like not a joke joke has been, I just can't wait till we can all get back to normal when life had no risk and no one ever died. You know, and no one was ever worried. Like there was never any concern about, oh, well, r- any type of business, uh, a restaurant, a school, a store, whatever. Oh, we've got to do something to mitigate the risk of the transmission of flu on our premises because if a child were to contract that on our premises and God forbid die from that infection, we might be exposed to some kind of liability. What a ridiculous thing. But we've but we've treated but we've treated COVID that way. That was that was never a thing. Yeah, I I just did a quick Google and it said that the CDC says the average flu deaths attributed to flu deaths again you know for whatever stock you put in those stats uh, was was like thirty six thousand people per year. So so thirty thousand people per, you know more people than the city we grew up in, Kale, per yeah. year, uh, every year dead of one disease that comes back the next year and kills that many again. Yeah, um, and, and, and frankly, that's, and that's one of the us were just annoyed at missing a day of work because of the flu. Yeah, <laughs> we didn't treat well, it like a big deal. And that that thirty six thousand that's with a populace that has some prior exposure to it. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, with um, you know, with a vaccine. With, yeah, with with a vaccine, which you is know, something I did want to bring to, up to you because to arguable degree is useful. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, you know, tis, tis the season where they're high, high harping on flu shots, and the flu seems to have hit earlier mm-hmm. uh, this year. Though, from what we're seeing, from what I understand, correct me if I'm wrong on any of this, like flu, they never know what strains are going to be prevalent. So we watch the other hemisphere because their flu season is opposite of ours. So we watch the other hemisphere. We see what's prevalent there, and that's kind of what they base the flu shot on for that given season. Yeah, we, we largely Thinking, try to predict yeah. predict the migration of it. We kind of see what's going on over there. We do the best we can to hodgepodge together a uh, you know a a, 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 a chemically relevant um, you know vaccine for it, and then we mass produce it real fast and try and throw it in everybody's arms. Um, so it it is variably effective every year. And as uh, one of my my more beloved attendings used to say, um, it's pretty pretty useless at not getting flu, uh, but pretty good at living living long enough to get your flu vaccine next year. Um, 
And whenever someone would tell him, well, the flu vaccine didn't work, I got the flu this year. And he would be like, but did you die? <laughs> uh, like, I mean, we're yeah. alive to have this talk, so it worked. Get your shot yeah. next year. <laughs> yeah. Well, and so that that's the thing, right? One, that we've that we that the flu season has begun earlier doesn't mean it's going to last longer because I believe what we saw in the other hemisphere in places like Australia was that it peaked earlier but ended earlier. Yep. Uh, and so, but uh, well, and uh, even we... if even if we knew it was going to last longer, like what are you going to do? Yeah. Right. Like what? Like how are you going to behave differently if the if the flu season is going to last an extra month? Like we're so, not going to do, do anything we... different. Are we far enough in at this point, and are there enough shots in arms to to kind of know? Because that's the thing. Some years they kind of nail their guests on strains, and the shot works really well. And some years it's like, a, oh, crap, I got stabbed in the arm for nothing. So is there any kind of vibe right now on the efficacy of this year's shot? I, I literally have no idea. I, I'm not sure. Um, I, I do know across all comers, uh, there there's pretty uh, presumed or at least calculated and professed pretty decent efficacy of survival rate improvals anywhere from, you know, 20 to 80% improvement on survival rate. Um, but you know, I have no idea on this particular year. Uh, now the, the part of the thing is you, that's across all comers too, right? So when you and I talk about like, well, why would we get this? Vaccine? Well, you and I are, are, are moderately probably above average healthy, you know, not, we're not athletes, but you know, probably above average healthy, 40-ish-year-old folks, right? So our risk of dying of flu is is pretty stinking low, um, partially because, and you meant you alluded to this earlier, flu is pretty dangerous to young, young, young kids and to much older people. It's got kind of what we call a, a bimodal distribution of, of death rate. So on either end of the bell curve is where you are more likely to be dead. Um, COVID threw everyone off because, frankly, it just didn't end up being that life-threateningly dangerous to most children, but the older folks really took the brunt of it. It was very, very, you know, I, um, one-sided. I saw, and I didn't save the the source, though. Uh, everybody has search engines. But I, I saw a stat this week that looking back, like nine out of 10 COVID deaths were in people. It was either over 60 or over 65. Oh, and yeah, it was, it was really abrupt. Very, yeah. very, very severe. Um, I, I remember I had a, I had a professor who was... Um, he was in that range, um, and and um, and easily in that range too. Didn't just sneak into the '60s and '70s. He was easily in it. And during the moments where we weren't, we we thought the death rate might even have been, you know, forty and fifty percent in in their age range. Um, they were nervous for the safety of residents because we didn't know enough about that. That like he was still showing up and insisting on going in the rooms instead of us because he, he wanted to protect us and stuff like that. And I, I remember residents sitting around and just, and I'm, and I'm not being like, um, I'm not uh, hyperbolic when I say this, like literal tears in residents' eyes talking about, we're going to watch this guy die because he won't get out of the way and let us go in. You know, we're in our 20s and 30s. What the hell is he doing? Um, because we were all convinced he was dead. Um, and, and that his selflessness and, you know, um, commission, you know, commitment to the cause would, would force us to watch him die. Um, and, uh, and that's not a thing that the average 40 year old had to deal with. Cause it turned out when when you looked at the average 40 year old, now 
I knew a number of 40 year olds and younger who died. I watched them die. Yeah. I know them. Um, but statistically those were, those were pretty far outliers. Right. Yeah. Um, but when, when one of my 70 year old patients got COVID in the beginning, I was like, man, it's going to be rough. I'll, you know, do you guys have wills? Um, because because at some point you just have to have those talks. And I yeah. had multiple talks with people in their seventies going, am I ever going to see my wife again? And I'd have to look them in the eye and say, you know, I'm really not sure. I think there's a real de- decent chance you're not. If you have some phone calls you need to make some, I love you, some apologies, you should make those calls. Um, so if I, I, if I can add, ask some genuine questions without yeah. sounding like I've been spending time on a, on a QAnon forum, um, just, but, but it's totally no, fair. Like, the question's got to be asked. And I think part of the problem with the whole thing was telling people they couldn't ask questions, um, trying to shut people up and shut up some honest questions, um, yeah. or even, um, even disingenuous questions is great. You should answer disingenuous questions too. Yeah, for sure. Well, and I think part of what the listeners will come to uh, appreciate uh, from you as a, as a regular on the podcast now that I've known about you for a long time is just like you're not quite Sheldon, but you're darn close, right? Like very, very logical, very analytical, uh, right? And so, you know, we're uh, we're never going to get an answer to a question out of Dr. Banting that's based on his emotion rather than if that runs counter to the data and to, you know, what can be presented as, as scientifically yeah, true. At least, so, at least hopefully without me admitting it and saying, Hey, I have no logical reason for this, but rah, I want to do this. So um, I just want, I, I want your take on, and again, I'm sure you'd like for me to provide sources. Um, I don't think I'm misrepresenting the, the headline stats Okay. that I'm going to ask you about. And we can go look for sources if you want to, but the, the, the couple of things I've seen, uh, out there in the past week or two is that the continent of Africa, despite having, uh, and of course, African nations and their, their affluence and their medical systems very widely. But the, the statistic that I've seen, I believe represents the entire continent of Africa, which is of course, many, many countries has a vaccination rate in the population of around 7% and COVID's just nar- near darn, like darn near non-existent. Uh, like they're closer to uh, zero COVID than China, who's welding people into buildings, um, which is which is just those videos curious. are crazy, by the way, dude. Oh, we're gonna talk China because China is popping off. Um, but uh, and so so that that's that's curious to me. And again, I'm not. I, I've, I've talked about my thoughts and feelings on on the vaccines uh, with you and, and just on the podcast in general. So I, this this isn't a big like let's get into the vaccine thing, but these are just curious points. As we gain more data, as we gain more experience, the other stat that I've seen is that at this point, more deaths that are attributed to COVID, more of the people who who die, and that's attributed to COVID at this point. Um, in this. Um, I mean, have we downgraded this pandemic, even still the right word now, whatever we're calling it, um, are, are vaccinated individuals than non-vaccinated? Yeah, and there's one specific thing I want to point about, that, that statistic. And the, the trouble with statistics is the way you say them really changes their, their meaning. And you have to think about the sample groups of each part. So when you say um, more deaths are vaccinated more deaths of, from COVID are vaccinated than not. One of the things you have to acknowledge is here in the United States, um, particularly amongst older adults, they are ridiculously overwhelmingly vaccinated. 
Um, I mean, I think it's well north of 80% at this point over 60. Um, Partially because we spent two years telling all of them they were dead if they got COVID and they weren't vaccinated, right? Um, So the the sample size is different now. Does that make sense? So uh, what what I don't know, and I've seen that stat, you know, in a headline. I haven't looked into it. But what I don't know is, because often the folks who write headlines are very bad at data. Uh, what I don't know is, is a vaccinated person at 60 years old more likely to die than if they were unvaccinated, which is a different yeah. statement than of the dramatically larger group of people who are vaccinated, they produce more deaths than the very small group of people who are not vaccinated. Does that make sense what I'm yeah. saying? Um, yeah, and one of the curiosities about these things um, that I don't know if we're ever going to have a real answer to is, you know, it'd be really nice at some point to see some breakdown, some kind of meta-analysis of, you know, looking back over this pandemic. And and maybe on the back end of it, it, it doesn't matter so much. Though I, I think it does There's, <laughs> um, for various reasons. But you know, how, how careful were we being about distinguishing between dying from COVID and dying with COVID? Because those are not the same thing. Yeah, no, I agree. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and I think that there's, um, you know, cause you know, I was, I know I wasn't the one actually reporting the data and stuff, but, but there were people who were, you know, if you're within six months of dying anyway, because of, just, I mean, complete long-term kidney failure and everything was falling apart for you and you were essentially on hospice and and you get COVID and you're, we all know you're going to die within six months, just happens to happen in the middle of a COVID fit. Did COVID kill you? Um, and okay, well, well, what if the time frame was we all knew you were dead in two years anyway? Or what if the time, like dead in five years anyway? Um, and how much credit do you give to the thing that was kind of the straw on the camel's back, right? Like do straws kill camels? Um, I mean, you you know, so there's some question mark there when you start to lay blame and stuff. So, um, and I think part of the trouble is because the, the, the push for certain approaches and lockdowns and vaccines was so very heavy handed, there was a, um, in my mind, a bit of a potentially equally reflexively overhanded or heavy-handed reaction against any desire to try and even kind of protect your fellow man a little bit out of like just voluntary being a nice dude and or considering that a vaccine might have some benefit Um, and both sides were got very very you know feathers ruffled standoffish there was a lot of saber rattling and now it, both sides have sabered rattles for so long, nobody can afford to be wrong. And so I don't know that I trust either side to particularly put out anything or even acknowledge a reasonable, honest, st- statistical win from the other side on any one of the minor points. Um, yeah. So I, I feel it's hard to have an honest discussion of any validity at this point. It, it gets difficult. Yeah, and the the real bummer, like the the real okay, this sucks for us as uh, you know a country, a civilization, a uh, a species. Is like I, I don't actually um, I don't mind seeing uh, an increase in skepticism in the general population uh, of the FDA, 
I think the uh, the FDA is a, a crap organization. Uh, that's just uh, I I don't think it's necessarily intentionally corrupt. It's just overly bureaucratic and and ineffective. Um, but um, the general increased distrust in the general population of the CDC that's really really problematic. I, I think I think part of the issue is that there is so much potential for good in centralizing access to some data. And I don't mean by force, I mean by uh, cooperation. And there are a lot of really, really good things that can be done with organizations that have the, the scope and the reach to get good information if they can stay neutral enough in its application and review and transparent enough in its limitations and in leaving the recommendations to, hey, guys, here is what the data says, and maybe potentially staying out of the, and because of this data, everyone must do this. And, and I think that it's hard to trust an organization that you feel like told you you had to do something um, if you felt that you got some harm from that thing they told you to do. It would be one thing if, and I think there might be a different level of generic uh, public trust in some of these government organizations, if they stuck to reporting data. Yeah. You know, if the only thing the CDC ever said was, hey, guys, just letting you know, if you're 70, your your likelihood to survive goes up by by five times if you take this shot. And, like, they just stop there. And then, okay, y'all discuss, and then they walk away, right? Yeah, and but, and if they and if they clarify by, and when we say five times, we don't mean it goes from a two percent chance, uh, you know, to a ten percent. We mean fivefold, five hundred percent increase in your yeah. odds, because yeah, that your always odds, your <laughs> odds as a seventy-year-old go from one in thirty of dying to one in four hundred and dying. Like those are your numbers. Do what you live your best life, y'all, and and walk out of the room. Like, yeah, um, and. And I think that, you know, partially the election cycles coming up during that, I don't know how anyone who's a government employee of high status would manage to stay out of it. Um, and, I, and I certainly don't think that um, people are generally looking for their science organizations to start um, demanding policy unless you happen to be the one in charge that year. Uh, you know, if, if you're not the one, the minority party certainly doesn't love the science organizations setting policy um, because it always, it's weird how the science organizations always seem to set the policy of the majority. Um, it's yeah. strange how that seems to work. So, um, you know, there, there were, there were certainly some public relation um, trust damaging moments throughout all of that. Um, and it's, it's just sad because there are a lot of really good people who work in those organizations who sincerely just want to save lives and I think that uh, good intentions don't always produce good results. Yeah. I, I think one thing we, we saw throughout this, for sure, um, and I, I think this is just true in life in general, and this just put it in uh, kind of greater relief, is that uh, all other things being equal, you know, age, socioeconomic status, the whole shebang, people who were healthier tended to do better with COVID. Yep. Not that, it's, it's not that there are any works, right? Yeah. But, you know, there, there's outliers, as there always are. 
Um, but by and large, the healthier you were, the better your odds. And I, I actually, it was funny. I think we talked about this at one point. I don't know if it was on or off the podcast, but for the longest time, we kept being told that, uh, being obese was a comorbidity, yep. uh, except for, and again, this gets back into the trickiness of data and statistics is that when you looked at the percentage of people uh, who dying from COVID who were obese, it tracked with the percentage of the population that was obese, which really mutters the waters on it being a comorbidity when it's just like, no, there's just that percentage of the population is fat. So there you go. Yeah, um, which happens right now in America is like more than half of us. Yeah. yeah. So, so it doesn't do you any favors. And so along those lines... Uh, right. I'm not, uh, I'm not as healthy as I could be right now. I'm certainly not as thin as I could be right now. And, and regular listeners will know that, uh, I figured I'd give something new a try. Now, uh, Dr. Banding and I, we've known each other long enough where he's, he's seen me. I've never really been a fad diet kind of person, I would say. Um, but I, I geek out despite my physique on fitness and, and nutrition, I read up, I study on these things a lot myself. And, uh, you know, so, you know, you've seen me drop significant weight, not in unhealthy yeah, ways. You, are, you of- are one of the few people I would refuse to enter a 90 day weight loss contest with. Um, I would just be like, nah, not interested. <laughs> Cause I, I sincerely believe just based off just knowledge and just willing to suffer. Um, I could crush I mean, without thinking, um, you know, it, were I at a high enough weight that it made sense, right? Um, you know, if I was 40 pounds overweight and someone else was 40 pounds overweight and the, the contest was who can lose 40 pounds the fastest, I firmly believe, you know, throwing all health out the window, I could crush 95% of the population without even thinking about it. Yeah. Um, I would not mention the contest with you. <laughs> well, the, like the most recent one of those that I did and, and won... <laughs> I, um, I know. I, I bet it. When, when I first started going to Orange Theory uh, with my wife, this was, um, I think it was probably 2019. I think it was after my, my son was born. We started going. And like the beginning of every year, they do, there's a name for it. I can't remember what it is, but they, it's like eight weeks or something like that. And you have to, you have to go and work out there at least twice a week or three times a week, at least like five out of eight weeks or something like that. There's a way in at the beginning, there's a way in at the end, and there's a, a, a male winner and a female winner, and it's percentage of body weight loss. Okay, um, and so this was coming up, and you pay a little bit to participate in this thing, uh, but top prize was five hundred bucks. Oh, so easy I'm, win I'm, for you. Yeah, so I'm curious. So I was just kind of talking to the the front desk staff about it. I'm like, well, like, can you guys tell me what the winning percentages have been? the last few times and it was consistent, which was not a surprise to me. Um, and it was something like 11 or 12% of body weight lost over, um, you know, these, these eight weeks. Um, and so I, you know, I'm not a nutritionist. I'm not a doctor. I didn't even stay at a holiday and select, like I said, I nerd out on this stuff. Uh, personal trainer that I worked with for a long time, really, really smart guy, drew bad, still loved to look drew up. Uh, his content's fantastic. B a y, e is bay, and uh, but he he some things I had gleaned from him is like there was actually a study that uh, that was done by I believe the Navy at one point, 
just trying to determine how many calories a day were available from your from your body fat. And it, it turns out that on average, again, when you get into physiology and nutrition, everything's super, ver- like everybody's an N of one, uh, right? But um, N of one being, you know, it's sample size of one. You are a unique individual and you can eat the exact same diet and do the exact same uh, things as as your spouse, as your sibling, and you're, you're not going to experience the exact same results unless you maybe happen to be identical twins. And even then, uh, li- there could be other confounding lifestyle factors. Everybody gets the point. But all that to say, on average, your body can draw about 31 calories per day per pound of body fat that you have. Okay, that's valuable information to know. There's also math to figure out Roughly how many calories you're using a day, A, just to function, just your base metabolic rate. Like if you were just going to lay still on the floor all day long, but you're alive, how many calories does your body need to perform that function? Yep. And then, of course, there's, there's math behind the activity. So this all becomes relatively simple math at some point. Um, and the, the math behind weight loss or, you know, um, isn't any big mystery about 3,500 calories is going to be a, a pound, give or take for you. So I knew, uh, cause I've got a fancy scale. I knew roughly how much body fat I had on me to, to the pound. Uh, and I'm the kind of person you shouldn't, most people should not do this. I'll weigh daily. Now, did Don't you have one that. of those, did you have like a normal scale and you just did your calculations or did you have one of the. Um, no, I got an impedance, like a withings like impedance. impedance ones? Yeah. Yeah. So the thing is, those things where it's like, put your hands on this thing or stand on this thing and it'll tell you what your body fat percentage is. Know that that's not accurate, but what it is, is accurate against itself. Yes. And that's why I like, I like if, because if I you have, keep the same level of hydration every time you tell, like hydration can change some of those things, but yes, yes you're correct. It, it, they, they tend to be relative lack to themselves, not necessarily the universe. Yeah. So changes matter. Deltas matter. Yes. And some of them will read through the feet and have a hand sensor that you hold. Those are going to be more accurate than feet only. But again, it's accurate against itself. So if you're weighing, you know, same time of day, same hydration, those changes are going to be accurate. So I knew from that roughly how the amount of body fat that I had on me, if it was off by even 10%, it didn't really matter for the kind of math I was doing for eight weeks of fat loss. So I I knew where I was at weight-wise. I knew how much body fat I had on me. I knew what uh, you'll you'll hear that uh, that like daily calorie expenditure referred to in a few different ways, and really it has a lot to do with. Um, and correct me if I'm I'm wrong here, but uh, really just kind of the math behind it. Because there's a, a few different equations, but you'll hear it BMR base base metabolic rate or TDEE um, yep. total daily energy expenditure. But it, that's all kind of the same thing. So the so the thing is, if you'll actually pay attention to how many calories you're consuming and you know what that BMR TDE is. So, so, you know, right there, you've got very, very easy math. What's the difference between the calories I'm putting in and the, the calories that my body's burning. Mm-hmm. And then you're, you're tracking by some method, the additional calories being burned through output. It's, it's just math. So oh, yeah. I knew, so I knew when they told me that, okay, this is how much I weigh. How much do I need to drop by the final weigh-in? Yeah, so if you say, it. well, listen, I know 15% would have won the last 10 years running. Um, okay, I got to get 15. Deal. Go. Yeah. And, and, and so, it's math from there. Yeah. Yeah, I, I knew the total pounds that I needed to lose. So I knew exactly um, what my what my 
daily deficit needed to be, what my average daily caloric deficit needed to be over those eight weeks to hit that specific total poundage lost to put me where I needed to be. Um, and, and so, and there's a little extra math there because you don't want to, you don't want to just fast, even if you have enough fat where you could, which that's been done, which is very, very fascinating. There's a study back in, I want to say the seventies where a dude fasted for a whole year under medical supervision. He was a morbidly obese, but fast for the whole year under medical supervision, he received supplements for, uh, essentials. Like, yeah. You, you, you do need some sort of vitamin supplementation yeah. for certain things there. Yeah. Yeah. And um, not only did he drop, I can't re remember how much weight, but he also had no looser, flabby skin, which you see with rapid weight loss in larger people. But so it's, it's really interesting how that yeah. went down. But anyways, yeah, I haven't but in read general, that one, but the claim on the skin part is the part that's really fascinating to me. Yes. Um, I have, I have been a part of uh, what ended up being medical supervision for very, 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 very significant weight loss. And, um, the reality is that, you know, energy deficit, calorie deficit, however you want to say it, you know, um, eating less than your body's using produces a loss of, of, you know, fat tissue, you know, and, and often muscle tissue with it, but, but like yeah. your body will shrink if you put less energy in it, than it burns. It's, yeah. it's just, I mean, no one really escapes the yeah. physics of that. No. And, and those are, those are good points because the, the goal, and that's why you don't want your, your, um, your deficit to be too great. One, that goes back to that 31 calories per pound of fat. You don't want to be at a greater deficit than you can draw from your available fat stores because it's going to come from somewhere and that somewhere is going to be muscle. Yeah. Um, though, if you tailor your diet to have sufficient protein and you stay sufficiently physically active, that your body is going to prioritize fat stores for that deficit. It will yeah, be more protein. Yeah, it will be more protein sparing. Um, so it's it's you can do things to mitigate any muscle loss while you're uh, in in that um, in that state of of, of weight loss. Um, so so I knew all, I knew all these numbers. I had done all this math. Um, and what's interesting was I didn't feel like too many other people were gaming it, and I don't mean they weren't trying; they just weren't gaming it. So um, I'm going to lay out some of the parameters, and we're going to see if you would have done the exact same thing as I would do. Yep. There's it's something like a five-day or three-day window to weigh in before the first week of this thing begins. There is um, a window to weigh in at the end of three, five days, whatever that is. Um, you you have to you can't work out at Orange Theory more than once in a day, um, and you have to work out. Like I said, it was you had to be in at least two or three times a week for like five or something out of the, so you could take a couple of, there could be a couple of weeks with no workout, but by and large, like five or six out of the eight or something, you had to go and work out. What's your approach, Dr. Banting? Um, so I'm assuming they have rules like the same clothes or, or like no shoes or something like that. Like, so there's no gaming garments. Not, not in any significant way. No, not any, Okay, cool. So, um, I would, I would eat to the point of tears. Like now, for the record, as a doctor, I need to disclaimer here. This is not about health. This is about just literally trying to win money. Okay, so yes. we're we're just game theory. Um, yes. I would eat to the point of tears. Um, walking in to test on the absolute earliest second I could possibly test, the earliest phase of the window. Um, yes, day this one. Is what I, 
that's this morning. is what I did. Yes. And, and and um and then and then from there I would not weigh in until the absolute end. Um and if there was a significant amount of money that I was willing to damage my health, I probably would have dehydrated myself at the end uh pretty significantly <laughs> as well. Um so, so I, I okay, so um there was a moment where I had to lose a pretty significant amount of weight to make something happen that needed. You know, there was a course that was gonna come and I had to lose weight to make it happen. Um and I did a an almost stupid high school wrestler level um, like dehydration and fasting thing to get because I just I was I had been lazy and wasn't paying attention. Um, and uh, for those who aren't who aren't aware, I'm I'm in the military, so I have to maintain a particular amount of weight. And uh, my 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 kind of walking around weight is pretty much on that line. And if I don't pay attention for a few months, you know, Kale and I've talked about this. You know, I fluctuate, and it happens. And sometimes I'm a little higher than I need to be on that. And if I hit a moment where I didn't pay attention to a deadline coming, I might need to to adjust that pretty quickly. And I I had a very unhealthy amount of time to get a particular amount of weight loss. And I I, I did a lot of. I mean, I was. I was lightheaded by the end of it. Um, not appropriate, not healthy in any way, shape, or form. It's everything I tell like high school and college athletes not to do to themselves for particular things. It certainly did not make me um, physically capable if I had been called upon to do any physical activities during any of those times. Uh, but you know, in the extreme of I needed to move the number from this number to that number in a short amount of time, it, it is pretty dramatic what people can do if they are willing to sacrifice their health, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, looking at you had eight weeks, you obviously weren't looking to just starve for eight weeks and go emaciated or whatever. The, no. the calculation well, of trying to figure yeah. out how do I avoid losing muscle mass is a big part of that and a yes. great part of trying to come out of that as a healthier person than you would have if you had just literally starved. Because um, frankly, anybody can just starve. Yes. Right. So I was, I was looking to spend, I had plenty of, of uh, fat mass to lose to win. Um, I did want to preserve my my lean body mass, uh, which I did. Uh, what I, I started to allude to before is uh, you don't did you, want. To... Did you intentionally not just like really overeat the day of when you knew this w- test window was coming in three weeks ahead? Did you intentionally gain fat mass leading up to the three weeks? I didn't. There wasn't a big enough time frame. I I just wasn't fastidious about the diet. Like I just ate. I just ate. But okay. I, you're like, I, hey, I can be, I can be I incentive. Es- yeah, I did essentially gorge the day of, and I weighed in on the very first day available, but as late in the day as possible, um, and retained as much mass in my body as I could. We'll just leave that at, at that uh, for that. And then the, <laughs> the, the day, like, Full bladder. <laughs> the, the second that weigh-in was done, though, that's that's when the very strict nutrition and the very strict working out was. So one, um, I was in I, I I was in Orange Theory five days a week um, because there was a minimum, but there wasn't a maximum. You could go all seven, though you don't want to overtrain. So I was in there five days a week, and I didn't notice anybody else really doing that. Maybe they were, maybe they were going at different times a day or whatever. Um, with two rest days, but I wasn't actually resting on my rest days because you can't work out twice a day at Orange Theory, but you can work out twice a day. So yep. I was still doing things like rucking and going for bike rides and whatever. They offered, um, like, on sa- at that point, on Saturday mornings, the first workout of the day was a 90. I'm like, well, if I'm going to do that, that 90 is always going to be one of my five that week. Mm-hmm. Uh, right? And it's not because there's, uh, like, uh, 
the Orange Theory style of workout is a very efficient way to get a caloric burn. Now, like working out to lose weight is a really bad idea. There's tons of data behind it. And most people, um, you'll actually end up consuming more calories when you're, when you're burning more. Like you, by and large, weight loss is, is on your plate. Weight loss is done with the fork and the spoon and the knife. Um, that said, I'm not normal people. And so I can, when the willpower is dialed up to 11, I can burn extra calories and not consume additional because I'm actually tracking and paying attention. And I don't con myself into, oh, well, I earned that extra thing. And, uh, and right? I, I do want to point out that's a very specific thing that a lot of people need to really grasp when, when you repeat the trope that, um, well, you know, working out can cause you to gain weight. Um, that sentence can be very, very misconstrued because um, working out does not cause you to gain weight. All workouts are a, are a net burn, and the can cause you to gain weight is the downstream effects, the secondary things of, well, working out can change some of your hormonal signals, can change some of your satiety, can change your, your intake, and the intake can cause you to gain weight. Um, yeah. you know, barring, barring all, you know, fluid edema and swelling and, you know, you know, that sort of stuff. But like, if you're talking like muscle and fat tissue, um, yeah. it's important to understand it's the downstream effects of the, the app, the stuff that matters. So when people say things like, well, calorie restriction doesn't work. Well, no, calorie restriction does work. The issue is people don't stick to it and they don't do it. So yes. what doesn't work real well is telling people to calorie restrict because they rarely do. Yes. Uh, but well, but the action of calorie if, restriction works yeah. just fine, if that makes well, sense. Well, and if you're if you're calorie restricting with low satiety foods, it's a freaking nightmare. Oh yeah, because because yeah, there you, are certain ways to do things that are more comfortable than yeah. others. And the the one other thing I was very cautious about in this the the whole time, which is a, is another factor, is you don't want to take your your calorie deficit too low because it goes back to that concept of basal metabolic rate. The body is very 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 efficient. Um, and in that like environmental signaling, we, we think we're separate from nature these days, but we're very much not. Uh, and we're still very, our body's still very tuned into environmental signaling and the, the human body is very attuned to famine signaling in that because there's been, it's throughout the majority of human history up until recently, this little blip, these last few hundred years, um, nobody really had any kind of food security and there might be t extended periods of time where you wouldn't eat and the body's very efficient at that. That's actually why if we get into talking keto at all, that's part of why that whole metabolic process exists. When your body's going, ah, we can't run this bad boy on glucose anymore, flip it over to the reserve tank. The ketones are the reserve tank. That's, that's the other process, right? Um, and so if you, if you take your caloric deficit too low, your body starts to slow things down because it goes, oh, crap, famine. So turn off the things we don't need. Now, I'm talking in kale terms, not Dr. Banting medical terms here. Um, but it will slow down or reduce that base metabolic rate. So just that base calorie burn that you're working off of, if your deficit's too low, uh, it, that will reduce that number. So I very intentionally made sure um, that my, my minimum daily caloric intake 
uh, was it's right around 18, 1850 calorie, uh, 1850 calories is what my TDE is. Mm-hmm. Um, and so then all, all of every, so that was my base. So that was what I would consume every day, 1800 and 1900 calories and everything else was all the deficit came ab- above that. Um, and so I was, you know, I was in orange theory five days a week, uh, five workouts a week. I was doing supplemental stuff like rucking, uh, whatever else. When it came down to that last week, of course, yes, I waited until the very last day to weigh in. Now, you can't work out before your weigh-in. Fair enough. At Orange Theory. Yeah, for so whatever, you're out in the parking lot doing yes. burpees. <laughs> well, for whatever reason, I had access to the local YMCA at the time. So I, I went to that mo- the Y that morning, and I kept cycling between a stationary bike and their sauna. Um, you just like, I'll just dehydrate I, myself and I'll, yeah. I'll get there. And I didn't now, rather than waiting till the end of the day to burn as much as I could, to me, this was strategy. I didn't go at the end of the day because uh, we, you actually wake up, um, not like dehydrated, like dangerously dehydrated, but your body off gases all night. Yep. Um, so you wake up less hydrated than you, than you went to sleep. So I didn't consume any fluids after I woke up. I went to the Y. I, I did a few cycles back and forth between the stationary bike and the sauna, stationary bike and sauna. I wasn't cutting weight like a UFC fighter. I didn't drop, I don't know that I dropped pounds there, uh, but I, I did that for a reasonable amount of time that morning. I showered, I toweled off, I went to Orange Theory, I did my weigh in, and I told, I said, before you tell me the number, I'm going to be at X pounds lost. And like I didn't predict down to ounces, but my my total weight loss was exactly what I said it was going to be before I weighed in at the start. Now, how much did you win by? This is what annoys me. I won the male category. I didn't win overall, which I don't count as a win. Now I took home the five hundred bucks, but there was this itty bitty little woman that beat me and it was by fractions of a percentage point. Uh, but that, that, that was a massive drop for, I mean, ladies, I'm not telling you anything you don't know, right? Like I know it infuriates all of you, um, you know, how quick men can drop weight. Uh, that was a massive weight loss for her over those eight weeks. I never really, I didn't know her. I didn't really talk to her about like, hey, what were you you doing? I almost feel, this isn't pride or ego. It's not that I didn't believe I could be beat. You could have been. I was doing fentermine. <laughs> but I don't, but I, I know this. Like I can go back and pull the stats up from then. I, I know this. I know I ended it with as much or maybe just slightly more lean body mass than I started with. Um, that's one thing, you know, if you're trying to lose weight, don't trick yourself into this, right? A, don't weigh all the time. Like I do. That's bad for most people because weight, the, the, uh, the scales, a hammer, it's not a scalpel, uh, and it'll fluctuate and it'll fluctuate a bunch within the same week or two. Uh, and you'll see a a lot of the, a lot of the, so I've been kind of studying like, um, some of the obesity medicine association stuff lately. And uh, a lot of the general recommendations really say, once a week, once a month, like, yeah. like tops, just, just work the plan. The, the, the notion of, I haven't pooped yet this morning. So now I feel like I've destroyed my entire weight loss structure. It just, it's unreasonable, right? Like a, yeah. a daily weight loss for the average human 
and the level of you know self doubts and stuff that we have in ourselves. Uh, it's just not it's not productive. Well, I mean, I'll tell you, I'm down like, uh, and this is kind of where this was leading. Is where we're going to talk about what I've been doing here recently. But I'm down. Uh, I think like four, 14, 15, 16 pounds, something like that since, uh, like October 16th, we're sitting here, we're, we're recording, uh, here almost last day of November. Um, and, uh, but like within that. And so if you, if you look at the trend, if you look at the graph, good, solid, healthy weight loss, um, you know, typically when you're dropping that fast over that period of time, that early weight loss was probably water weight, depending on what you're doing to lose the weight. So don't get too too prideful about that, um, and and I'm and I'm not. Uh, but uh, within that period of time, I've seen I don't know two or three. This is with daily weigh-ins, two, three, maybe even four pound spikes up in the weigh-in, and it's not necessarily all gone the next day. And if you're somebody where that's going to wreck you and your motivation, daily weigh-ins aren't for you, right? I'm. I'm a freak. I'm a weirdo. Don't don't do uh, what I'm doing. But uh, what people also understand is um, when you're in that period of, of weight loss, right? That state's called catabolic. Um, when you're when you're adding, uh, you'll you'll. This is why you hear them referred to as anabolic steroids. That's that's anabolic. The body's really not designed to be anabolic and catabolic at the same time. So what we trick ourselves into is if you step on the scale, if it's been a week or two weeks and the weight loss isn't as great as you expected, you often hear people console themselves or others with, uh, oh, well, you've been working out though, so you probably added muscle weight too. If you've been in a caloric deficit, you did not add muscle weight. The most you can hope to do is preserve it. Yeah, you Am I never wrong? hear. You never hear. Um, I've always found that to be funny because, on a, on a passive level, um, I, I follow some of the bodybuilder universe, right? Um, and you never see a competitive bodybuilder in the middle of a cut going, "I added five pounds of muscle mass during my cut." <laughs> like it's just it's not really what they do, um, you know. They eat to to go into that anabolic phase, and obviously there's you know substances involved and stuff too. But you know there is a there's a a caloric um, surplus to give their body, and the 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 unintended side effect of that is you end up with some fat, whatever. But but they're feeding the junk out of those muscles to get them as big as they yeah. can possibly get them, and then you end up with some extra fat tissue. And then they go to get rid of the fat tissue. And the entire goal is to just try and cling on to every ounce of muscle that they can. But no one's expecting to grow muscles dramatically during, during uh, your, your anabolic stuff. And so the, the notion of like, oh, well, it's, it's probably all just muscle mass. No, what, what really happens, and this, this hurts sometimes to hear, but we like to tell ourselves that the weight on the scale is, well, it's, it's probably because I've done five push-ups a day. Well, it's probably not. It's probably because yeah. we, we have eating habits that are a little out of line with our, you know, our energy expenditure. And we're getting a little older than we used to be. And we eat the standard American fare, uh, which is pretty bad for just general overall nutrition. And, you know, you're not a bad human, but like, you know, we ate in a way that cost us to gain weight. And, you know, there's lots of contributing factors there, but it is what it is. Yeah. Yeah. And so I'd be interested to see. 
I'm not accusing this woman of anything. I don't think she cheated. I don't think she would ever, you know, and like, hey, I was gaming the thing. Like I gave myself every advantage within reason without cheating. But man, for someone her size, I mean, I'm 5'11". She was, I'd say, I mean, it's been a long time since I even saw her. She was probably 5'5 or something. Like I just remember her being kind of short uh, to drop that kind of weight and that kind of time. And she wasn't, uh, you know, particularly large to start with. I'm like, dang, was it healthy? Like, what did you do? Like, were you on that the popcorn diet? Is that what you were doing? Um, so I was, I was mad. Her, her total percentage was higher than mine. So you know, kudos to her. Whatever. Um, but so that was just a fun little dalliance. That wasn't one of those times where it was like, hey, I'm like on on the path. I'm going to get healthier and and lose some weight. There was. Uh, a point way back when I can't remember the time frame without looking up the data. Actually, Doctor Banting uh, convinced me to do a sprint triathlon. Uh, you were always a runner. I was always a, a swimmer. I had raced BMX. I had never done any yeah. road bike stuff. And so, and we of both- course, like like all smart people, we waited until we were old and out of shape to do both yeah. together. <laughs> yeah, so we we both kind of had our, our strengths and weaknesses there in the old triathlon. But that kind of that kind of got me the bug. Um, with with the road bike, which is a, an old school BMXer, I really never had a lot of respect for road cyclists at all. Uh, but I kind of got into that, and I cracked. I wasn't following any kind of diet. I just did my own thing, and again, just got very strict with my caloric intake. I had the same smoothie every morning. I can tell you the recipe right now, which was a cup of skim milk, half a cup of blueberries, a tablespoon of low fat peanut butter. I preferred Jif, uh, a scoop of vanilla whey protein. Um, boy, I wish Molk had been around back then. You're supposed to use some ground flaxseed. I use flaxseed oil instead because ground flaxseed made it seem like there were bugs in my shake, which yeah. the you know WEF would prefer that I put bugs in my shake now. So that was breakfast every day. At lunch, I'd have a turkey sandwich with either uh, uh, you know um, some uh, hummus on it or some mustard. Dinner was a protein and vegetables. That was that was every day. And, I mean, I dropped crazy weight. I got down. Mm-hmm. Um, I petered off down around 190 Yep. Uh, doing that. And, and that was down from I think the high I saw then was probably like 265 or something yep. be- before when I started that process. Well, and certainly your cardiovascular would have improved during that. Your leg strength would have improved during all that because of all the time you were spending on the bike. But just the physics – of losing 60, 70 pounds really makes you appreciate why most of the, the, uh, you know, the folks standing on the podium tour de France, you know, competitive cyclists, why they are incredibly tiny humans with absurd legs. Yes. Um, because the, 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 you know, all it is is it's Watts per pound. Right. And, and they are, they are tiny, tiny, tiny people. They're just, they're just basically legs with lungs strapped on top. Um, and, and it's hard to imagine, um, until you've been on a bike, how hard it is to move a heavy body on a bike. Um, cause everyone thinks like, Oh, well, I used to ride a bike when I was a kid. It's not the same. Um, not even it's little. not the same. Yeah. And what's funny is when you start figuring out that all the roads you think around you are flat or not. Yeah. Every road you've driven on that you think was flat has an incline. All Every hill is steeper on a bike. Every yeah. single hill. Um, and so that was that was just kind of winging it, and that was just kind of uh, I was on the bike a lot, a lot, a lot, which that's got its own health Im- implications, um, you know, that we're learning more about these days. But then, um, 
you know, got married, got comfortable, got whatever, put weight back on, all the typical stuff that happens in life, got heavy again. Um, I did. I can't remember at what point I did it. I did Metafast for a while, which I think they've rebranded. It was funny because Metafast is one of those deals where it's like five tiny meals a day and then like a protein and greens meal. And that goes back to that, like when you're in a caloric deficit, if you're not eating satiating foods, like – Oh, miserable. You wouldn't, you, you'll experience hangry like you never have before. And it was funny with those Metafast things, man, because, like, if you didn't hit those little meals, like, every two hours, dude, you'd eat a human being. Like, you just full-on, like, unhinge your jaw and, and eat a human. I, I'm not, not recommending that at all. But so um, starting to get into, I think, probably through hearing, I want to say maybe it was um, Altucher, James or Jay Altucher, I heard him on Tim Ferriss, and I heard him talking about kind of like how he ate and how he worked out, and that kind of led, led me to Dave Asprey, who's the uh, the Bulletproof guy. Yep. And now I, what I know now that I didn't kind of realize then is that Dave's kind of woo and a little bit of a, a snake oil salesman some, but even a bloke, uh, broke clock's right twice a day. And kind of getting into some of the I, – I, there was a period of time where I was basically doing like the primal paleo thing. Paleo was horrible branding. Um, but you know, um, I, so I'd start the morning with a bulletproof coffee. I mean, full on two tablespoons of butter, two tablespoons of MCT. Don't start with two tablespoons of MCT. It will no, result in disaster, disaster pants. One hundred percent. Um, it's not like a, you're going to clench your butt and run for the bathroom. You're not getting there. No, um, no, it's not happening. Not. Um, but, you're, uh, you just decided that morning which pants you were pooping in. That's the only vote yeah. you get. <laughs> yeah, uh, but but doing that, working out, saw while while I was while I was doing that, um, and again, it's what I, what I landed on. So all that to say, that kind of led me to people who are 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 better thinkers in the space than like a Dave Asprey. So the Rob Wolfs and the Mark Sissons uh, of the world, um, who've really broken down and taken a scientific approach and, and really understand these things. Uh, into paleo primal and it's really not more like i love mark sisson like you can buy his books you read his blogs you listen to podcasts whatever but it re he gives it all away for free like it really breaks down very simply uh right of um eat meat fish fowl and eggs the majority of your diet meat fish fowl and eggs the the best uh quality that you can afford whatever that is um eat a bunch of vegetables um Eat, eat some nuts, eat some berries, eat some healthy fats. Avoid uh, grains, avoid seed oils, seed oil, uh, and processed foods. And, uh, you know, his take is you eat that way pretty much 80% of the time, you're you're going to lead a, a pretty a pretty healthy lifestyle. Well, right? I think lift part some, part of the issue when you start evaluating varying diets is so many people want to really, really fight about, well, which is the perfection diet? And, and well, if you made this one tweak, you'll make this better. And so since there, since I envision a tweak to your diet that could be potentially better, your whole diet sucks and you're stupid, <laughs> right? Yes. Um, but I think part of the issue is when you think about how few people are being very intentional about food choices, you know, and myself included for most of my life, right? There are so many you know, diet plan type options out there that offer improvement over the average happenstance, just, you know, the average American intake, right? Um, and I think that particularly, you know, so you're talking about the, you know, um, the most natural meats you can afford, 
you know, you've got some, a bunch of vegetables in there and some nuts. Like when you think about that, it's hard to look at that. And when you compare it to the average American, sure, maybe you think you can design a better diet than that, right? But when you look at what the average American is intaking, it's hard to look at that and go, you dummies, that'll never work. <laughs> right? like it, it, yeah. It's laughable when yeah. you put it against what the average American eats every single day. Um, and still, you'll have a lot of people who will argue against it in the, you know, the, you know, perfect is the enemy of good. And, um, you know, there, there might be some flaws there, but I, I think it shows sizable, sizable improvement over, over what most of us are doing. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that, that there's an issue with folks who just want to initially just to decry anything that is a, is a change from, you know, the normal food pyramid. Right. Yeah. Well, and it, it certainly, well, and again, this goes back to, you know, this is where some, some skepticism around the FDA would do a lot of people, uh, some, some good. Um, but, uh, you know, because there, there's a lot of issues with the, with the, uh, I'm doing air quotes, you can't see science that has led us to the recommended food period, uh, or pyramid. Uh, but yeah, I mean the, almost any change from the standard American diet is going to result in improved health. And that's part of why you see things like, um, I, I do not, and I don't know if we have the time to, to debate this and the, or that I have enough of the information stored in my head without references to do it justice. But I, I'm, I do not believe that um, a, a vegetarian or certainly a, a vegan diet uh, is, uh, is optimal, in any way optimal for, for human health, particularly long term. But that goes to show how truly detrimental the standard American diet is at this point that – a switch to anything, even if it's not optimal, is going to show improvement. And and the thing, if you if you look back, I, I oh, saw somebody. I, that, I, I need to be very clear, you know, because you you know, and there are again, you know, I just I've been studying a lot of the Obesity Medicine Association stuff lately. Um, there are one hundred percent, absolutely, um, you know, deficits in the in the vegetarian diet that that literally have to be met intentionally with supplementation. That exists. That's a real thing. That's at this point considered to be largely settled science, so to speak. Now, granted, obviously, you know, we'll always retest that theory and try and find stuff, whatever. But yeah. there's a pretty large consensus there. Um, but the average American, were they to say, "Hey, you know what? You know, I I'm doing salads and vegetables and fruits and nuts now, and um, and I and I'm done, and that's all I'm going to do." Right? Um, the average American's health would probably increase dramatically. And I would I would posit that the reason that is isn't because of what they're eating. It's because of what they've stopped eating. Oh, so no, I, I agree with you on that. Mm -hmm. That's if fair. if you see, um, I, I saw somebody just the other day post a couple of pictures juxtaposed. It was just a, just a picture, just a candid shot of a beach in like the '60s or '70s, and like a candid shot of people at the beach now, and it was like there. If there were fat people in that 60s or 70s picture, like they were the outlier, whereas now it's predominant in the picture. Like go to the beach right now. It's going to be the majority of the people you're going to see are overweight. They may not be morbidly obese, uh, but they're overweight. Um, and statistics bear that out, certainly in America at this point. Well, our, our, um, like our demographic numbers have changed. And. Um, you know, I think another thing that just bears mentioning, and I, I'm, 
I'm not saying this in a scolding way. I'm saying this because I, I think Kale, just knowing you forever, you're going to find, you will, you will find this intriguing. Um, there is a move to start using what they call uh, people first language. Um, and not only against the, the you know, we, we constantly find ways to find a new term to say the same thing we used to say, but now this term, um, you know, is considered more palatable, so to speak. Um, but there's a move to go from saying not only not use the word fat, right, uh, to the point where uh, there's, there's movements to not even have doctors use the word fat tissue, but use the word adipose tissue. Uh, because, you know, it means the same thing, but, you know, it, it doesn't have an emotional attachment, right? Um, there's also um, a, a movement to start using the phrasing um, someone who has obesity or has overweight as though, it, it, you know, using identifying that disease factor as opposed to saying uh, someone who is obese or someone who is overweight. They don't, they don't, they don't, they are not um, an obese person. They are a person who suffers from obesity. Does that make sense? Um, yes. And so... The, the phrasing there is is part of, I find, you know, you referencing like the numbers changing. I think part of the reason for that call to change some of the language is because the numbers have changed so much in the sense of when it was one out of a thousand people, um, and I'm not saying this is appropriate, just is I think this is my positive as to what was going on. When it was one out of a thousand people, no one cared if that person's feelings were hurt statistically, Right. People were just like, well, well, like you know, deal with it, bro. Like, like it was a, a small enough factor that that people didn't particularly worry about it, and and now you know we're you know half of half more half are are, are qualified by BMI as being overweight, and so now it's like, well, everybody is, and so now that now the language starts to change that the that the numbers are up, but when you look at our diet changes from what it used to be, you look at our physical activity changes from what it used to be. Um, there's a lot of understanding of how we got so different. Like, we don't look like we used to. Well, what's funny is we looked better when McDonald's was frying their fries in beef tallow. <laughs> and we were still eating plenty of McDonald's. Because you know what? Grandma did that at home, too. And the mom did that at home, too. Then in the, the significant changes in our our diets from that period of time and from you know history you know beyond that um was from consuming animal products and animal fats um to it was the low fat movement fat was the villain and fat was villainized so we got rid of fat everywhere we could and when we removed the flavor from fat we made up for that flavor with it's sugar true. yep and with trans and everything fat, became high fructose corn syrup. Yes, and consume and more grains vastly increase the the grain content, and so there's less fat in the diet than there ever was, and we're fatter than we've ever been. But what replaced it was the trans fats and seed oils and all these things. And it's and so yeah, go go vegan from the standard American diet. You know what you're not eating anymore. The sugars, the trans fats, the seed oils. You probably st are still keeping the seed oils around because you're probably dumping store-bought uh, dressing on that big old salad that you're eating. Uh, and it's pro the base is probably, um, well, we don't, we don't call it rapeseed, but canola oil because rapeseed doesn't sound appetizing. Um, you know, it's probably either soy or canola oil. Um, you know, and these things like 
uh, correct me if I'm wrong, the wall of every cell in your body made from fat? Yeah, it's you all, need fat. They're, you they're you all just, straight up have to have fat. That, that's yeah, they're, they're, they're all, and so when you're the, – the problem with these with these seed oils is that, like, you, you we literally are what we eat. Like, your body needs building blocks to build these things, mm-hmm. uh, right? And so when you – when these – crappy fats get incorporated into like cell walls it creates issues with being brittle and breakable there's just all the all these second order effects and so when we thought the problem was the fats it really wasn't the problem's more uh the the sugars and then these other franken things we've come up with now at this point and so whatever diet you're on that eliminates those things you're going to see an improvement in health now, because you have a very expensive medical license to maintain and a, a practice to run and all those things, I'll allow you on the podcast to get away with saying things like has obesity or adipose tissue. But you know what? I'm a fatty fat fatso, and I'm not going to feel any better about dying from heart disease if it's caused by adipose tissue instead of fat tissue, and no one else is going to either. And that's exactly what Dr. Cox would say, and that's why I love him. And so... And the fact that I love you and I knew that it would bother you is the main reason I wanted to point it out. Because because here's the the disingenuous thing about it, though, is because while I don't think this is true at a micro level, I'm not talking about individual doctors standing in front of patients. At a macro level, your industry gains nothing if the general populace improves their diet and improves their health and their health span. There's no money in that for your industry. Preventative medicine is not where the money's at for you guys. And oh, improve, if, if you're a hospital system, that's absolutely true. Um, I, and, and I do, I do agree with that statement. So, um, so I'll, I'll share another fun thing. The, um, the, the concept of wellness visits, those are intended to be a, a nod to look how much we care about preventive medicine. We have these wellness visits where we're supposed to, to catch all of the um, preventive screening things and we're supposed to show that we're doing all the thorough stuff and we're not just talking to you about your cough when you come in. We're you know doing your predictive health stuff, the things that will whatever. And you know there's a lot of check lock, checks box questions and stuff you do in, in, in wellness visits and stuff like that. Um, but if someone comes in for a wellness visit, uh, you know, a Medicare wellness visit, and they're like, oh, and by the way, you know, I'm here for my wellness visit, I would like to also um, manage my blood pressure. Like, like my blood pressure is out, of, is out of line. Let's just go ahead and talk about that while I'm here. Um, no, you're not. Because you're, you're, you're not the, 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 the medical group doing that, the practice doing that, the doctor doing that, whatever. They're not paid during a wellness visit to actually fix anything. A wellness visit is literally a checkbox thing. Um, and, and some of the insurance plans will not allow you to do a wellness visit and a problem-based visit on the same day. And they literally want you to make that person come back or you know, eat and essentially donate all the care and the time it takes to, to talk through a problem. You're supposed to just have them make that person come back in if you want to actually be paid for, for changing something as opposed to just, you know, running down the checkbox. Yeah. Um, so, like, like that is part of the sham of, of some of the general system and the way it's set up and the flaws in it. Um, now, one of the arguments is like, well, but, but isn't it good, though, that the, the boxes at least get checked so then you identify the things you need to do? We should celebrate that win. Well, I, I mean, maybe, but like, 
I understand, you know, perfect being the enemy of good, but um, it seems a bit of a mess where if we identify a thing while you're sitting in front of me, um, I, am, I am not in any way, shape, or form compensated for dealing with it. Um, no. And so I'm told to either um, do the work for free or, or tell you to come back. And that's a thing that happens in many, many doctor's offices across the country. Now, in some places, they'll let you literally bill two different visits for the same day. Um, and, the, and there are two bills that go out, one for the villainous and one for the problem visit. Yeah, I can see you shaking your head because that sounds insane when you say it out loud. But that is a thing where if there's a doctor listening to this podcast later, they're laughing because they know how stupid and real it is. Yeah. Well, and, you know, the reality, like, there's, there's no prescription to write. There, there's no, there's, nobody's making any money from a doctor saying, yeah, you know, um, some, some of your vitals, some of your blood work aren't where I'd like them to be. Um, and, yeah, there's some stuff I, I could prescribe. And it, we might have to do that. But if you'll, if you'll humor me, if you'll take 30 days, and what I want you to do is every day, I want you just to go just a 20-minute walk. I want you to go for a 20-minute walk. Then there should be a brisk walk. You don't have to look like one of those weirdos speed walking in the Olympics. Go, go for a walk with your kids, your wife, your dog. Go for a walk. 20 minutes after dinner would be a great time to do it. And however you're eating right now, here, here's what I want you to do for, for these 30 days. Just 30 days. It's, it's a used car sale. If you don't like it, bring it back. And if you'll do this for 30 days come back and see me and let's take a look and see if things are better. If, if that's not going to do the trick, we'll, we can look at the meds, mm-hmm. but, but yeah. let's do that. But um, nobody's getting paid for that walk. Nobody's getting paid for them. Uh, you know, maybe buying uh, some steaks or some chicken breast instead of the red bear and pizza. There's, there's no money to be made in the medical community for that. And if they actually do it and don't just come back and say, well, I try, I, I tried, if they actually do it, all of their, all, without fail, without fail, numbers are going to be improved when they come back. Oh, yeah. And, and here's the, the part that's even crazier about that. Um, as someone who has tried to have those exact talks with people, um, a talk to explain all of that might take 10 minutes. A talk to explain a pill and the, the two or three medically relevant side effects you need to watch out for and how the monitoring works and all that sort of stuff, um, you can explain a pill in about two minutes. And if you're a physician in most family medicine, I used to do primary care. You know, if you're a primary care doctor in, working for most hospital systems, you're given somewhere between 15 or 20 minutes per patient. And that's not 15 or 20 minutes to sit in the room with the patient. That's 15 or 20 minutes till the next one shows up, including all the charting you have to do for the person and the fact that your nurse has to room the person and get their blood pressure and all that lined up and you got to say hi and all that fun stuff. Um, And you might only get that person who would actually show up in your building once a month, once a year, so they want to talk about 14 things during that 15-minute visit. And now you're stuck going, well, their blood pressure's up, I've got another 82 seconds to discuss how to get their blood pressure down. Um, I'm not, I'm not likely to get them to come back. I, the hospital system has stacked me up with, with more patients coming down the pipe, no matter what I do. And I understand the success rate of getting people to do the, to do the harder changes. 
man, this, this pill talk sure seems like it's the more, the more likely thing to make happen. And so the whole system is just designed and not, maybe not intentionally, whatever, maybe not maliciously, but everything just leans toward it's easier to describe the pill and move on. Um, and it, w- when the, the system will sometimes say, well, no, 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 there's, there's definitely preventative health codes where a doctor can bill for doing preventative health talks. Well, that, that's technically true. Uh, because that's relatively true. But I've looked through the RVU, RVU codes for that. The RVU codes is like the, the rates that they pay doctors. And it's yeah. much less than the visits. You get paid much less to sit down and talk um, about, hey, man, let's talk about your diet. Let's, let's, let's do some diet coaching for you. Let, let's sit down and go through, you know, have you write out your food diary for a week. And let's sit down and find some improvements together, some things that might work for you. Um, and, and, and those talks, like the codes that pay for those, those pay less than regular visits. Um, and, what, and so it, what it's determines hard. that? What drives that, though? Is it, is it Medicare and Medicaid that drives the price point of those codes, or is it the private insurers? Um, because it Medi- just seems like logic to me in my head would be that the insurance companies would be paying top dollar for those actual preventative measures those actual preventative conversations because that's the biggest margins for them. Healthier clients is the biggest provides the largest margins for them. Yeah. You, you would tend to think so. And and I think part of the issue is there's an argument of like, well, if you know how we talked earlier about, um, well, calorie deficits don't work. Well, Well, no calorie deficits absolutely work. What might not work is telling people to do calorie deficits. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, and I don't know if anyone's statistically proven yet to a degree that an insurance actuary would agree with that paying doctors to sit down and do motivational dietary and lifestyle change advice produces an end gain to the insurance company's wallet. I think if someone could prove that to the point that the insurance company would believe it, and I'm not even saying it's not true. I'm saying it hasn't been proven to the point that the insurance company believes it or they would all pay more for it. Um that wouldn't be it. Now, what, what has happened is a lot of the insurance stuff and, you know, started with Medicare has moved to, well, instead of paying you for every visit, um, we're going to do the math and we're going to say, you know what? The average health care cost for someone in Medicare is $10,000 a year, and I'm making up money here. So we're going to give you a panel of 5,000 patients. You get half a million dollars um, and um, figure it out. Go. And then in those types of systems, hospital networks are starting to go, well, we only have this much money. Let's get real, real particular and strategic about how do we spend money in ways that, not, that doesn't cost us money, right? And the trouble there is, is the motivation at the end to just not spend money or is the motivation to make the patient healthier? And sometimes the accusation is made that the motivation is to just deny care so then you're not spending money because if you're not delivering care you're not spending any money so the hospital system wins look at all the money we saved but is the patient any healthier and in some cases they do things that make a lot of sense like hey if a patient keeps coming back because their fluid levels are off from their congestive heart failure or their diabetes keeps getting out of whack or something like that or they're constantly in the emergency department because um, they keep missing their dialysis appointments well you know what if we send a truck to their front door or if we send a nurse to their house every three days to weigh them and make sure they're taking their meds, or if we fix the steps so they don't, or we put a ramp, we literally build a ramp in front of their apartment because they keep falling down these bad steps they have, or if we fix their air conditioning so they stop showing up when it's hot, right? Like stuff like that, 
though they start to get a little more creative in those cases. Um, but there's also a risk of, well, what if the people really need more than I'm technically allotted for that year? Because if, if you're a hospital system and you're not being given more, do you just start rationing things? Um, because all of those models um, result in year over year. If you manage to save money, they trim down a little bit next year, the, the cap. So it's, it's the same thing like every, the, every trope about government spending. Well, well, if I don't spend my money, my department doesn't get it next year. So you got all the army guys standing out like shooting a pallet worth of, of ammo for no reason because if they, don't, if they don't shoot it, they won't get it next year. Yeah, that sounds like a good time. So, well, I want to I want to zero in on something uh, yeah. real uh, tiny there that you mentioned because to address the rest of it will push me over the edge. <laughs> in that you're like uh, you're telling people, oh, being a caloric deficit doesn't really work. And there's more to that story, right? There, there is more to it than calories in, calories out. And some people very much want to simplify it to that. But we all intrinsically, without any medical training, nutritional training, understand that, say, 100 calories of, of a good – or 200 calories from a good steak is not the same as 200 calories of Skittles. You oh, can yeah. end up – you could end up at the same caloric deficit, but you're not going to end up with the same level of health. So there is more Absolutely. to the game than you know, calories. You can lose weight calories. eating Snickers. You can lose weight eating Snickers, but are you healthier? Uh, no, right. and it's absurd, right? But so what, what's really interesting is part of the problem with the standard American diet is the way that it mess with hormone, messes with hormones that are integral to how we eat and how our body uses energy. And Absolutely. If you're, Regardless of your weight, because there is such a thing as skinny fat, just because your fat's packed around your organs uh, rather than flopping around on the outside doesn't mean you're not fat or that you're healthy. Um, but um, the vast majority of people eating the standard American diet uh, have some level of uh, insulin insensitivity, mm -hmm. and they also have reduced sensitivity to um, hormones called leptin and ghrelin. So. Yep. Ghrelin, ghrelin is the hunger hormone. Leptin is the satiety hormone. Uh, and insulin is really just a transporter, right? Insulin is just getting things in and out of, of cells. Um, and so when you break that cycle, and that's part of why like eating these uh, high sugar, high carbohydrate diets, um, it, it will spike your blood sugar. You get an insulin dump while you're insulin sensitive. It hammers everything. So all of a sudden it overreacts because you've spiked it to a level that you never would have seen naturally outside of ding-dongs and ho-hos existing. Yep. Uh, and so now you've got super low blood sugar. Guess what happens when your blood sugar is super low? You're super hungry, right? But you're – so – you're, you're, you're super hungry, but you're not as sensitive to leptin, which is what tells your brain, hey, I'm good. Let's stop eating. So you yep. overeat. So guess what? You've spiked your blood sugar again because you ate more ding-dongs and ho-hos. And it might not have been ding-dongs and ho-hos. It might have been something super healthy like a bagel. Um, hey, all those grains, all those carbohydrates, once they're in the body, you know what they are? They're sugar. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. It's one of the hard things when I, when I have talked as, you know, in, in urgent care, I find a lot of folks who are new, who are, you know, I find diabetes randomly in people. Um, and so I have a lot of talks about, you know, and, and unfortunately I, I get to have the 10 minute talk with someone, Hey, you have diabetes. We're going to do 10 minutes on this and, and make sure you talk to your doctor or come back in a week and talk to me again. And we'll do the next, next part of this. Right. Um, 
And the short talk is like, you know, you can control diabetes one of two ways, right? And to certain degrees, your genetics decide how hard that's going to be. But the only approaches really are medicine or intake and activity, right? Like that's kind of the only things you can do. Um, And if your goal is to stay off insulin and, you know, your genetics have been lucky enough to make that even an option for you, um, you got to really control how you eat. And we can't just, you can't just throw things at, throw medicines at things and expect that you're going to be just as healthy as if you had controlled with eating. And when I explain to someone hey, the trouble is now your body doesn't work right. And so, you know, you have to start thinking of a bunch of things as, like like they're candy, right? And now, uh, now pasta's candy, potatoes is candy, bread is candy, uh, french fries are candy, rice is candy, um, you know, to a lesser degree, beans are candy. Like, like sorry, guys, everything's yeah. candy now. And, and at that point, I've wiped out 70% of what the average American is eating all the time, right? Or at least I've told them it's all candy. Um, and that's before I talked to them about the sugary drinks. And so it's uh, it's a hard thing. And then another thing a lot of folks don't understand is folks who end up having issues with, you know, needing to be insulin dependent because their diabetes is so bad. They don't change what they're doing, what they're eating a whole lot, but now they start using insulin and they're they're dumbfounded that they'll gain thirty pounds out of nowhere, um, and they don't understand it. And they're like, "But my blood sugar is so good." I'm like, "Well, well, no. All that stuff that would have become fat tissue was just floating around in your in your blood as really high sugar. And all the insulin did, you know, diabetes management is just a is just a measure of how much how much that's is in your blood. And all the insulin is doing is pushing it into your fat tissue. You you got to cut down the supply if you want to lose weight again." And the balance of all that is really hard to understand because we're so used to stuff just working. It's like explaining back pain to a young, healthy person. <laughs> well, like, uh, and, uh, and this is where I, where I'm going uh, with this is like, if you're listening right now and you don't want to count calories, I don't blame you. Nobody does unless you're a super nerd. Nobody wants to log everything in the app. Nobody wants to like Weight Watchers. How many points have I eaten today? Which is just substitute math for your calories and your macros. <laughs> Um, if you will, if you will pay attention to just one, maybe two things, if you will keep your carbohydrate intake under 100 grams per day, so under 75 would be better under hundred grams per day. And if you would just get those from anything other than, than grains, I mean, we're going to leave potatoes in the mix, eliminate grains, keep your carbohydrate intake under 100, 75, 100 grams a day. Don't worry about counting calories. You're going to lose weight and your health is going to improve. And if, you're, if you're currently eating the standard American diet and paying no attention to your, your diet and your exercise, your health will improve. Yeah, I think what a lot of people don't understand, and, and you and I have both done different variations of keto, almost carnivore, or stuff like that, is if you are really limiting your carbs like that, and it's it's not hard to end up with a hundred carbs. They add up fast, right? Yeah. Um, if if you're eating grains and stuff, if you're yeah. not, like, try and get a hundred grams of carbohydrates from broccoli. You ain't gonna do it. <laughs> you're not gonna yeah. do it. Well, and and that's the point that I wanted to make is if you're really limiting your carbs, which are so um, calorie dense, you know, if you're really limiting your carbs, 
it it would be a chore, and I mean like a real effort, to eat two thousand calories of meat and vegetables to to finish up the rest of that, right? I mean, you you gotta you'd have to work, and yeah. not to mention once your once your insulin surge levels finally calm down, you get a little used to that. You just don't have the appetite and the hunger signals that you used to have once you start calming all that down a little bit. Um, when I am in phases of my life where I'm eating kind of standard American, whatever, man, if I go four or five hours without eating, I mean, I get, I get, I feel wrong, right? Yeah. Um, and when I go through phases where I am really limiting my carb intake and I'm doing what I would consider to be more appropriate eating or I'm trying to lose weight and, you know, I'm really kind of watching what I'm doing a little bit better. Um, you know what, if, if I'm in the middle of a shift and, and we're not like sitting down and it's not scheduled to eat, I don't, I don't stress about it. And when I sit down, I, I, you know, I eat what looks good or what I'm, you know, what I'm thinking I want to do, but I rarely feel the need to like, I must eat right now or I'm in trouble. Yeah. Like, like that, that signal just goes away and you just, you just can't eat 3000, 3000 calories a day of that stuff without yeah. really suffering because you just, you just can't eat it that much. You don't well, need to. And that was the beauty. That first that first go round um, with that big uh, weight drop where I got down to 190, that was, um, that was calorie counting done easy and that I built it into the system. I just ate the same freaking thing every single day. Most mm-hmm. people can't or won't. I could and I did. So I only had to count the calories one time. Yeah, if you're willing to be boring, it's um, no. it's it's not that complicated. You you find but, you find one meal and you're good to go. But the the beauty of things and why why I mentioned like those hormones. I'm not trying to sound smarter than I am because I've I've got a doctor on the podcast. But the reason it's under it's it's you need to under it's helpful or it was helpful to me to understand those things, those mechanisms that were at play, because to me, that very much helps motivate the changes when you understand what's broken and what it's actually going to fix. And the beauty, mm-hmm. when I when I found this, this idea behind what used to be called paleo and is now more primal, you hear a lot about, about keto, but in particular, low carb. So the quality, so reducing carbohydrates and then thinking about the quality of the other things that you're eating, I didn't count a calorie i didn't i didn't look anything up because when you break that cycle of of the insulin of the blood sugar spikes with the insulin dump uh and when you you remove kind of like those seed oils um that that mess you know there, there's all kinds of different things and you remove the grains you restore your body's natural sensitivity to the insulin to the leptin to the ghrelin mm-hmm. so when you're hungry you're actually actually hungry you're responding to to lept or to ghrelin. It's not that your blood sugar has just tanked because you ate a whole box of oatmeal cream pies. And the reason that's my example is because I have on many occasions eaten entire boxes of oatmeal cream pies because they're delicious, because yeah. they're formulated to be delicious. Yeah, they're um, definitely formulated to be delicious. When you're eating, you're eating because you're actually hungry. It's not just this artificially low blood sugar. And then You'll act, your body can actually respond to leptin when, when you're full. So you'll actually naturally start to feel full and, and then you'll actually respond to insulin properly. And so you'll put yourself, the body's really good at self-regulating when we're not doing unnatural things with it and to it. And so I, I dropped weight that go around comparable to the weight I had done when I was 
eating very restrictively and, and paying attention to the calorie deficit, but I didn't count a calorie. I wasn't miserable. I wasn't starving. I wasn't hangry if I, if I missed a meal. Um, and so it was really interesting. So all that to say, I've kind of done all the things other than I don't do the, I don't do the fad diets. I don't do the cleanses. I'm not only going to drink lemon water for two weeks. Yeah. Um, I haven't done any of those things, but the stuff that's more logical <clears throat> and more science-based. And so, um, I had, I had dabbled in keto for a while and I mean, legit keto. Some people just think it means, you know, you eat a lot of butter or something, but like I was, I was using strips. I, you know, I was regularly testing at like two, three millimolars of ketones, typically like actual dietary ketosis. Most of the medical community agrees it's around like one millimolar. So that's measuring how, how much, how many ketones per, yep. uh, what is it per deciliter or, or whatever, actually measuring it in the blood. So I, I did actual, um, keto. So I've kind of done all these things and something that's just been kind of on the fringes, peaking my curiosity here for a while has been carnivore. And the first time I remember hearing about it was Jordan Peterson talking about it on Joe Rogan's podcast. And he said it was something his daughter had him try because she had had all kinds of, uh, autoimmune issues, um, uh, debilitating arthritis as a te- joint replacements as a teenager, um, all these different things that doing a very restrictive carnivore diet had resolved for her and of one. Mm-hmm. And, uh, he had some similar issues and he was do- doing it too. And you know, what they were espousing was a, a very, very, um, you know, paired back version of carnivore it was basically ruminant meat and salt and water. And that like, can I have some pepper? Nope. Ruminant meat, salt and water. So, you know, cow, lamb, that that kind of stuff. I'm like, ah, that's that's interesting. Like a very specific niche of the carnivore universe. Yeah. But you know, like here's Jordan, here's this, you know, uh eloquent, intelligent, highly educated, um, logical, analytical guy. I'm like, ah, really interesting. Um so there, there's been, um, you know, some other uh, guests on Joe Rogan's podcast in particular, and then I, I've heard them on, on others. Really kind of the, the big names um, are there's a, a doctor, a, a medical doctor by the name of Sean Baker, who literally wrote the book, The Carnivore Diet. Um, another guy uh, by the name of, of Paul Saladino. Now, Paul's an, an MD, but I believe his specialty was psychology, and some people give him some knocks from that. But those guys go to the same med school as the rest of you, do they not? They absolutely do. Yeah. So, and you know, and I don't, I don't know what years they are, but uh, but nowadays, I mean, psychology is actually reasonably competitive. Um, it's one of the few places where you can do your stuff from home and just be on the phone. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So no, uh, psych psych people are real doctors. They're, the psychiatrists are are real yeah. physicians. Yep. So I, I had been very intrigued by carnivore for, for some time. I didn't know anybody that was really trying it, um, but but really intrigued because it was kind of in this vein of these other things that I have uh, tried that I do have a decent understanding or I would say an above average probably understanding of uh, in the nutrition space and in the diet space. And so a lot of what I was hearing from these people rang true. Like it checked out with me. It made sense. But it was still like, dude, we grew up, you know, we're both early 40s. Like we grew up prime time food pyramid, like seven, eight servings of green right there at the base of that bad boy. We grew up on, 
you know, the best Kellogg's and General Mills had to offer in the morning and savored every sip of milk when we were done, right? So it's just, there's something in, in your brain that's like, but no, you have to have vegetables, right? Like, like don't, right? Like, you know, I mean, right? Well, so it's and, just. The- and I got to admit, I was thinking the same thing when I first started med school. And then um, there was, a, uh, there was a, a gentleman who actually is now one of the leaders in the Obesity Medicine Association, who was one of my professors. And he spoke about how that, that whole premise is completely challenged by the existence of the Inuit people. Yes. Um, you know, for, for, for most Americans that they, you know, they would have used the phrase Eskimos, but, but the Inuit people is really how they would tend to use that. But, you know, folks who live like frozen tundra where there isn't exactly a large amount of, you know, crop rotation, right. Um, and huge portions of their diet are, are fatty animals, right. And yeah. that's kind of, they're, they're largely living a full carnivore lifestyle for the most part up there. And, um, and this is this is current, not historical. I mean, this is. Yeah, yeah they are still living. Yeah. There, there are many people still living like that today. Obviously, less than there used to be. Yeah. Uh, but like for for hundreds of years, humans have done that. Yeah. You know, it wasn't the, the it wasn't exactly the norm. Not every not like every single place does he have people who only do that. But like, it's a, it's a thing that people have done forever yeah. and not died. Yeah, the the, and the notion that we would all die without yeah. spaghetti is is kind of a ri- ridiculous when you yeah. think about it out loud. Yeah, an, another example that that's uh, you know still uh, in existence now is the Maasai tribe um, is is very similar diet. I think they also uh, drink like uh, horses' milk mixed with blood and some other things, but animal certainly primarily anim, animal based diet. So there there's some uh, you know some societal examples out there. And um, so not not too long ago, a better podcast host would have the episode number up, but wouldn't be that hard to find to the savvy listener. I had Jeff Smith from Colorado Craft Beef on, um, you know, and we were mostly talking about what, what they do and, and what they're about. And that was awesome. But but we hit on in that um, that he'd been doing carnivore and was like 90 pounds down. And I'm like, well, well, dang. And he had mentioned it in passing when we were when we were talking before he came on the podcast. Um, that, cause he was kind of explaining to me like what made his steak special. And he actually says, you know, I've been on Dr. Sean Baker, which that rang a bell immediately. I've been on his podcast. Second, of course, he's consumed a lot of beef, you know, and he told me he could pick my steaks out of a blind taste test because they're so, they're so different and they're so good. So I, I knew he kind of had a connection there. And so it just piqued my interest more on the podcast um, and again, like you, you don't have to talk to Jeff for long to understand he's our kind of guy. He's intelligent. He's analytical. He's logical. Um, you know, and here he's, he's connected, uh, with Dr. Baker is like this direct, if not the leading source, one of certainly one of the top, uh, sources, uh, and, and, and voices in the carnivore space. No, and he's, he's a, doing he's a massive thing. name. Yeah. Yeah. Now, of course, Jeff also has, you know, ready and easy access to a lot of beef, <laughs> which is, which is handy. But I'm like, you know what? What the heck? I'll give it a go. So I can't remember exactly when after recording or the podcast, uh, I kind of dipped over into carnivore. I went back and re-listened to Sean Baker's episode on, uh, on Rogan, um, and, uh, bought his book, snagged it on Kindle and, and blew through that. And, uh, but that's when I say I'm down, whatever, 14, 15, 16 pounds since October 16th, 
that's that's the only change. I haven't counted a calorie. I don't look at the macros. Uh, most days well, I, and I eat will some. Say, you've sent out some pictures of your of your meals. They don't exactly look uh, like you're suffering. I'm um, no, I, I'm not suffering at all. Most days uh, I have some some eggs. I like my eggs uh, kind of soft scrambled. Um, so I, I cook those with some, some good butter. I might throw a little bit of, uh, like shredded cheddar cheese on top. So I am still including some dairy. Um, I might have, uh, some, some, some burger patties, maybe with a slice or two of cheese, maybe not, um, plenty of salt on and in, in, in all of it. And I'll still season. I'm still using I'm not on Michaela Peterson has kind of branded her version. Uh, which I don't begrudge her, uh, Jordan Peterson's daughter of the carnivore diet, the lion diet. And you can certainly look up their resources up. But again, that the focus there is money more, somehow. Yeah. Well, and the focus there, like they're, they're talking about what really you're talking about uh, just a, a, a really pared down elimination diet. Um, and so they've eliminated all the way down to, you know, like ruminant meat and salt. Um, so I'm still using seasonings. Like I'll still put some Tony Sashries in the eggs. I'll still put some pepper on the steaks or some, some garlic. Um, you know, uh, whatever, but, and then I'll, I'll have a, a steak or two, um, a day. I haven't paid attention to how much of it I'm eating. I'll tell clearly I'm in a caloric deficit. Let me tell you, you want to talk about having a difficult time eating maintenance calories, try and do it with all like meat and eggs. <laughs> At a certain uh, point you're like, yeah, not hungry anymore. Uh, so I don't, I haven't had, I didn't have blood work done before though. I had some pretty extensive blood work done a while back ago, uh, for some other stuff that was going on that I could reference. I can't remember what all it hit on. Um, but there, I, there, there's lots of people out there now. Um, and actually Dr. Baker through a group is working on, uh, putting together some data and some studies, but there's enough people that have been doing this and doing this for a long time where, you know, one of the first things is, oh, you're going to end up with scurvy. Well, it turns out, no, no, you don't. And there's a lot of, um, uh, biological reasons behind that where, uh, you know, reducing the consumptions of other things reduces the amount of vitamin C. Uh, that you need for optimal function. And so what you're getting from what you are consuming, uh, because the reality is that um, of all foods, uh, meat and animal products tend to be the most nutrient dense and those nutrients tend to be the most bioavailable. Yep. Uh, And so when you're talking about, okay, really, why am I eating? Well, I'm eating because my body needs, needs fuel, right? It needs materials to build and do what it's doing. Well, what's it need to do? Well, it needs to build and maintain muscle. It needs to build and maintain cartilage. It needs to build and maintain. So, you know, it's kind of all these things, one of all these things where, um, it turns out one of the best things for like pregnant women to eat is eggs and egg yolks. If they're well tolerated, because you think about, you need the building blocks to grow a baby, to grow an embryo. They're all in egg yolk, all of them, everything you need. Doesn't mean you should only be eating egg yolks, but I'd highly recommend, uh, really, um, it takes a lot of fat to build a kid. So really good, good, healthy fats and making sure that your omega-6s are on point. It's a great idea. Uh, uh, you know, uh, you're a doctor. I'm not. And neither one of us is actually doling out medical advice right now. But so this is just me talking. I'm not talking for you. But the, those are good things. And so um, some of the things that you think would, would be deficient, it just turns out as people do this, uh, they're not. They, they don't turn up that way. Um, and uh, a lot of things get well, better. So again, I would say, you know, for folks who are like, oh, you're going to get scurvy if you do this diet. 
to me, that is another throwback to the argument of, well, they think they can find some tweak to this thing, so they want you to throw away the entire thing. When you look at what you're doing right now compared to what you're reading six months ago, it, you know, and, and I, I don't believe you ever ate as bad as the average American in most, at most points in your life, but like, look at what you're eating right now compared to the average American diet, right? If the, if the, if, even if it was a hundred percent true that anyone who did what you did will get scurvy, cool, take some vitamin C and do what yeah. you're doing, right? Cause, cause it's still better, right? E- even if the, even if the scurvy argument was a hundred percent real, everyone who does this will get scurvy. Oh, cool. Then, then take a vitamin C tablet, bro. Um, you know, like even the arguments against, you know, the, the pure vegan diet, cause there are some weaknesses there. They're there. Um, well, if that's the only way you're going to leave the average American diet and pursue your health in a way that's a little more meaningful than the kind of the haphazard way we most most of us handle our intake, man, man cool. Take the supplements you need and enjoy your salad, right? <laughs> Just yeah. sure. Is there something I think that might that might be more useful to you? Cool. But also, man, we all got our own path and and you're better off than you used to be. Take your supplements and enjoy your salad. So I wanted to bring it up while you were on for for a couple of reasons. One, to to tease um, uh, an upcoming guest on this, but two, like I, I I want your like your initial thoughts. I don't know how much you've looked into carnivore. I like at the at the surface, um, what would intrigue you about it? What questions or concerns would you have? So let let's start there. Um, for for to be honest with you, I've looked into it minimally because I've been working the last six days. So I have, I haven't done a ton of look into it. So what I, I think, um, I largely lump a lot of that into the, the keto universe, which I looked into quite a bit. I am not someone who believes that the average human needs an, you know, a ton of carbs to be, to be alive or something like that for the most part. Um, you know, you, you look at whole tribes that have managed to get by without, you know, basing 30% of their diet or 60% of their diet on complex carbs and all that sort of stuff. Um, and clearly our, our bodies can do it. And again, still better than the average American diet in almost all cases. Um, I think there's certain, you know, like you're gonna, you're gonna get, um, again, the, like how efficient the, the, the body is, is, is really crazy. It's really impressive. And what amount of, again, so a lot of, there's more and more studies around carnivore, um, so a lot of the data right now is anecdotal. That's changing. More studies are being done. More studies are being published. Uh, but from all of the anecdotal evidence available, um, it it seems to bear out that what glucose you glucose you actually do do need um, because there's still glu- even if you're you're fully ketogenic, there's still glucose in circulation. Oh, the, yeah. the body the body will generate what it needs from gluconeogenesis, so it will take mm-hmm. those proteins and generate what glucose you need. Um, so just to say that you're not consuming any carbs at all, which would would be the case here, um, you know, maybe a little bit from some of the dairy product I, I still consume, but uh, negligible. Um, yeah, but in theory, you can you the can body's going to create the rest of, of what yeah, I need. Yeah, I'm with that. Oh, it's like saying, like, well, I, I don't, I don't ingest vitamin D, but I'm outside all day, right? You know, to a certain yeah. degree, um, you know, there's some stuff there, um, but it, it's, um, it's, it's a thing where I think a lot of people look at it and they just want to just immediately call it insane, because when you just tell someone, oh, I'm going to eat a steak, um, the immediate gut reaction for, for most of us who have grown up with, well, why aren't you eating your vegetables? You know, why, why isn't there a potato on your plate? That sort of stuff. You know, there's this, there's this image 
it's been kind of put in our our mind about what a meal should be, right? And in my mind, that kind of just gut image is, okay, well, there's a piece of meat over here in this corner, and there's some sort of vegetables, and there's probably like a potato or some mashed potatoes over here, and then maybe there's a, a dinner roll or something. And to me, like, that's like the quintessential American meal. And deviation from that is like, well, why don't I have the American meal? I, I what, What's wrong, right? And, and, in, and I think there's a little bit of a subconscious thing there of if you showed me a plate of just a steak, sure, it's delicious, but it doesn't, on a subconscious level, it doesn't look like a meal. It looks like my entree. Like, it looks like the main part of my meal. And so... Yeah. Telling someone, well, just eat that sounds a little bit to, I think, the average American psyche of like, well, why aren't you giving me the rest of my stuff? Where's my stuff? I need my stuff. And it feels like you're denying something and therefore feels like it's wrong or feels like you're missing something you need. And so you're either denying a necessity or you're denying a privilege. And no one really likes to be short of either. Yeah. And and so so I think, I think that's an issue. To, to me, one of the questions, you know, if you were... If you happen to be interviewing someone who is big in the carnivore space, uh, to me, the question that I would have is, where do you think the resistance, the the biggest resistance has come from? And I don't mean like human or organization. I mean like psychologically or systemically. Like what has been the resistance that you've gotten from the medical universe? And what do you think it would take to get the medical universe to really buy in en masse? Yeah, that to me would be the interesting question that I, you know, far more than like you know the nerd science of well, where does this triglyceride go and stuff like that. Yeah. To me, on a systemic level, like, well, what would it take to get the medical universe to really buy in? And, yeah, and and, and I mean, where do you what what do you where do you think the hardest resistance has come from? Like, and why? Yeah. Um, because frankly, people still push the carb thing. I've had trouble where I've taken folks who had had severe diabetes and referred them to diet dietitians to talk about, and it often they didn't end up with a registered dietitian. They ended up with someone else. There's a whole complicated story there about what those things were, but they ended up to someone who'd somehow gotten a certification to talk about nutrition and they were trying to control their incredibly uncontrolled diabetes and they got told to eat more carbs because they weren't balanced enough. And I had to holler and tell the patient to ignore the 40 minutes of advice they got from the patient, from the person I sent them to who had been certified by the government to to teach people about nutrition. I I don't know if you'll go with me on this and and that would be okay. But from, from what I've, I've read from what I've studied and what I've seen with people anecdotally. Now I, I never, uh, there may have been times though. I never had a doctor tell me this, that, that I was probably pre-diabetic. I've, I've never been type two diabetic or anything like that. But if you, if, I, if you could wave a magic wand right now, this goes back to that stat I offered. If you could wave a magic wand and tomorrow, everyone in America, everyone in the world, whatever population set you want to take, uh, wouldn't consume more than 75 to 100 grams of carbohydrates in a day, uh, type 2 diabetes would be an anomaly. It'd be rare. You wouldn't see it. There'd be no market for, for insulin. It'd be tiny. It just, well, it just, I mean, it type just one diabetes folks would absolutely still need it, but the, yeah. um, the, but that's the, as the, that's the small, small, smaller portion of the diabetes community, um, there would be massive, I mean, absurd reductions in type two diabetes. And yeah. it's not, and it's not that it's not that the genetic predisposition to insulin, um, cause there is some of that, that the genetic predisposition to insulin sensitivity 
um, would 100% disappear. A lot of it would be resolved by the weight loss that would come from the, all that sort of stuff. Um, there is a number of studies that are coming out now about the epigenetics of it, uh, which is not necessarily that your your parents' weight changed the the actual structure of their DNA, but it changed the expression of it. And mm -hmm. that um, if your parents have certain weights, it, it sends you to certain places, it sends you to certain weights and stuff like that. And they've even gotten into some of the identical twin studies and things. So there's some interesting things there. Um, but you would also have dramatic changes in, um, you know, with the diabetes reduction, you'd have changes in how many people ended up on dialysis. You'd have, you'd have dramatic changes in how many people needed um, back surgeries, how many people needed knee replacements. You'd have dramatic reductions in, uh, in I think, heart disease. Um, you'd have dramatic reductions in how many people were on CPAPs, for, uh, largely off like structural weight issues and stuff like that. Um, like the, the entire Amer particularly American, you know, I can't speak for every other culture. I'm yeah. not there, but the, the American culture would, would just be obliterated. Uh, lots of things would be different. Yeah. Also lots of restaurants would close. Yeah. And, and or, I or just have as, to buy a lot more of Colorado beef. Yeah, <laughs> yes. Or okay with that. Tell them we sent you. Yeah. Um, indeed. But, uh, it, it's just to, to see, um, you know, all of these self, self-inflicted wounds. I'm sorry. I don't have fat. I am fat, <laughs> right? I just, for, for so, for so many people that are, that are overweight and you can, uh, you know, disagree with me or you can withhold comment or whatever you've got to do professionally. Um, but it's just, you know what, for most people, it's not your thyroid and you're not fooling anyone other than, than maybe yourself. Um, you know, unless a doctor has told you it is like there, there's just it's not it's for, for the vast majority of Americans at this point who are overweight, wherever you fall on that scale. Um, you know, it's it, it wasn't your biology. It wasn't your genes. It was your fork, uh, you know, and uh, the, the same thing that caused the problem can is, is the solution to the problem. And, and I think I think that is at its most brutal um, application and and review um, accurate to certain degrees in the sense that what, what I think is missing and I think is an issue is, again, calorie restrictions works. Telling people to just calorie restrict isn't necessarily as effective. Um, controlling the fork absolutely will control weight. You know, the, the amount of fat tissue on us in, in literally every human, it does, if yeah. you control the fork. If you put someone in a room and lock the door and you only pass so many calories through the door every day, people will lose weight. It just is what it is. Um, but there's a, a pretty complicated, you know, uh, like for instance, ghrelin, you, you mentioned earlier, when folks go through significant weight loss, um, your body will upregulate ghrelin and it will, your body will tell you, hey, bro, time to get hungrier. And um, there's, there's studies that show when you kind of hit that immediate weight loss phase, all there's like, there's like almost predictable Okay, and here's where your ghrelin's going to freak out, and all of a sudden, and that's statistically where, where people tend to start regaining and stuff like that, because your body's like your body will will try and fight you on it, and so your body will fight the hormones. Out. So to certain degrees, the the calorie intake, the cycle of you know insulin surges and all that, um, that becomes a somewhat addictive process, and um, I, I think it's it's. It, it, it's a sensitive thing to try and, and claim, um, you know, food issues, uh, as, you know, equivalent in some way to, um, you know, cigarette addictions or things of that sort of stuff. But, but as the hormones that, that, uh, that, you know, feed our dopamine and our ghrelin and all that sort of stuff, 
you know, our hormones lead us towards certain things. At the end of the day, you know, we choose to do what we choose to do. But our hormones make certain things harder, certain things uh, yeah. easier, and then stuff like that. And so does and, and does, does, leptin, does leptin sensitivity not increase in concert along with that, or does it just kind of lag behind a little? Um, I, I do not know if it's if it's like a, a true proportional. Does that make sense? Yeah, um, I, I don't know that number off the top of my and head. And again, d depending on 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 what you're eating, like leptin can only do so much. Not oh yeah, yeah, and and there's a certain yeah. amount of satiety and and length and, and length of satiety and all sort of stuff that comes from certain types of foods. So yeah. you know you can you can suffer losing weight at 1,200 calories harder eating one type of 1,200 calories and then another type of 1,200 calories. But I, I think it is it is absolutely true that when someone tells you. Hey, I've I've eaten 400 calories a day for the last six months, and I haven't lost weight. It's my thyroid. Um, well, statistically, it's probably not your thyroid. Statistically, you're probably not eating 400 calories. Yeah, and, and that's okay because you know you might sincerely believe you are, but math wise, that just doesn't add up. Like that's just yeah. not that's just not a thing. So um, I think. There are there are debates, and I have seen many doctors debate how to approach stuff like that. Whether you are you're less productive, just call it out and be like, no, it's not 400 calories. There's something missing there. Um, versus, do you just do you try and not like let people believe that it's probably true and keep talking about and like, well, well, okay, then maybe it's harder for you. So let's find another thing we can work on and stop worrying about counting the calories and stuff like that. And, and I don't know, you know, because lots of people have different things. It's because some people are you. And they'll count every grain of sand that goes into their mouth if you tell them to, and you can convince them there's a reason, right? And then some people will, will just literally not. They're not going to. That's one of the reasons those meal replacement companies exist because some people just, they don't want to have to deal with it. Yeah. They're just like, don't make me think about it. Just tell me to drink four jars. <laughs> and, and, as, and as long as you've got the willpower to just drink four jars, that works. You'll lose weight, right? Yeah. You know, there's someone willing to sell you jars. Um, but at some point you're going to want to go to, you're going to want to go to the restaurant with your family and, and you're gonna have to figure out how to do that without walking out, walking in the back and trying to like count the calories of the person in the back and ask them how many sticks of butter they're putting in whatever. Like you, you can't do that forever. Um, yeah. and I think what, what happened is we've just got this really, really outsized out inappropriate relationship with food in America. Yeah. Well, we really and do. you know, at its, at its simplest level. You know, as a as a cheat guide, I really like Mark Sisson's breakdown. I feel like it's very simple. But you can also just say, like, don't don't eat anything with more than one ingredient on the label, and and you're gonna be better off. And when when you restore health to yourself, when you get these hormones functioning the way they're supposed to be, like animals don't run, like wild animals don't run around sick and and obese. That doesn't happen. Well, I yeah, even kind of like, heard the, like, just eat around the outside of the grocery store. Yeah, right. Um, yeah. You know, that, that sort of uh, stuff. Like, like a, a, you know, a lion or the zebra the lion eats, neither one of them's ever seen a nutritional label. And yet their body self-regulates. Ours do the same thing when you eat real foods. It's when you eat the stuff that we've engineered to be better or taste better for cheaper or less uh, that really kind of gets those things out of whack. And if you're eating whole foods, if you're eating meats, if you're eating, you know, e even if it's not all stuff that that I would say necessarily is helpful at this point, but uh, if you're eating meats, you're eating fruits, you're eating vegetables, maybe you want to, you know, you want to have some some nuts, whatever. Um, 
you're you're going to restore the function of those things, and you won't have to worry about the calorie counting. Now, a couple of things, and we're we're going long here, and I'm okay with that. Um, but that I want to squeeze in before we go, and while it's topical, and that uh, you kind of cheekily alluded to, is that, and I who knows if I should say this on the podcast yet, um, or if anybody's still listening over two hours in, but. Um, I have been connected with Dr. Sean Baker, and uh, we're we're working to uh, try and find a date and time to, in fact, come here on the podcast, and uh, and really super deep, cool for you, man. Deep deep dive and, and break down uh, all things carnivore. So hopefully, I'll be able to uh, to put a, a date, uh, a hard date, to that uh, here soon, and and that'll come to fruition. But if it does, I, d- I definitely want you to uh, no. feed me some doctory questions. Just as a, just in a trolling nature, what would it take for you to make that your first video podcast, and also eat a large chocolate cake the entire time? <laughs> uh, man, that's a tough sell on either one of those. Things. <laughs> I will say one of the things that Doctor Baker does that I appreciate and why I think we're going to get along just fine is if you go and and follow him on uh, say like Instagram or or Twitter. He'll he'll take um, videos from people of uh, you know like the the vegan and, and vegetarian persuasion and the uh, you know the let's eat uh, bugs or fake meat all, all that stuff people and he'll he'll pull up a he'll put a clip of them like picture in picture and he just sits there and eats like two and a half pound of pounds of steak like on the video just letting their it's their audio he just lets them talk. And uh, and just eat steak in the background. And uh, I do I, appreciate the trolling nature of that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you you got to be I, able to poke fun at folks. So that that's fair. You know, it's kind of that Christian concept of uh, you know preach at all times and when you when you must use words. <laughs> I'm, so it's a carnivore <laughs> version of that. It is certainly so, an application. <laughs> yeah. So I I think he and I will will get along just fine. But I also wanted to because it's funny we I, I think or at least you uh, sound you know real like uh, you know intelligent and all that stuff when we do these podcasts. But the reality is we've been friends for a long time, and a lot of what we talk about is uh, you know just your everyday inanities, the same uh, memes and and gifs and uh, all the other stupid pointless. Uh, cultural crap that everybody else is talking about. And so yep. uh, in the spirit of that, but still topical to this carnivore, have you seen or heard of this guy, the liver King? Oh my gosh. I, I, I follow the liver King on, on Instagram. He's ridiculous. Right. He's, he's blown up. And right. I be so super clear, not medical opinion. That's just me as a human being. Yes. I think he's hilarious. Yeah. Entertainment value in the same way. One might watch the WWE. Uh, yeah. So, uh, yeah, my favorite liver- is that he does, and I think it's weekly. He says he does it. Where he like like just puts a whole bunch of big heavy chains on and a big heavy weight belt on his waist and puts a bunch of heavy weights on his on his uh, on his legs and grabs like I'm assuming he's claiming they're hundred pound kettlebells or something and then like just drags a three hundred pound sled behind him and he says he goes for like a mile walk or something when he when he does yeah. it. and it, and it's always in the rain or in the snow or uphill with spears falling uh, you know it's it's always yeah. going to be slightly more dramatic than the last time so I'm not going to break down all of this dude's stick listeners you probably. Either you've already heard of him and, and seen him before uh, on the socials, or you pretty much get the gist just from this basic thing, right? Dude calls himself the Liver King. He he kind of popped up on the social media radar like a year or more ago. He's really blown up. He's been on big, big podcasts. You see this guy. I mean, he's built 
like a, like a He-Man action figure when you see him. Like it's it's not like seeing Chris Evans or Chris Hemsworth with their shirt off. It's more ridiculous than that, right? And he's got big beard and this wild hair, and he's always shirtless and he's always shoeless. Um, and you know he touts all these. He calls them the like nine the ancestral, ancestral tenants. Yeah, and so he's <laughs> he's he's a character, right? But he's been emphatic, emphatic this whole time. Um, that he's, he's all natural, that this is all that he looks the way he does, that he's built the way he is because he lives out these tenets and eats the way he does up to and including eating all lots of raw liver and organ meat and testicles and all kinds of stuff. Um, well, there's all kinds and so of people should understand he he's bigger and more ripped than Henry Cavill and Superman. I mean, yeah. it, it, it is not, it is not minor. No, it's insane. And so today, as we're recording, uh, breaking news, someone claims to have leaked emails from a trainer that he reached out to. Um, and these leaked emails, I want to see if there's a date on them. I'm trying to find an actual shot of the email because I saw it somewhere. Um, okay, let me see if I can get to it from this picture. It's going to take me to a video. Um, so uh, this doesn't have the whole date, but basically this, ha this is him reaching out to this uh, trainer and uh, it has the whole list of all of the uh, steroids that he's on and what his cycle is. Uh, and so I'm going to read these off and you can break down to us uh, what these are. Oh man, I can't read out. So he's, uh, taking uh, Omnitrope, 5.8 milligram vials, 16 vials of that a month. Wait, are uh, you asking me to name all of the brand names of steroids in HGH? Well, no, I'm, I'm just saying maybe, maybe you can break down how this is not all natty. Like, um, oh, I will uh, just I will just say that that doesn't sound natty immediately. Omnitrope. I, I want to be super clear. No medical opinion on if he's using it or not, but Omnitrope is not natty. I, I IGF one LR been taking this for a year. CJC with IMAP been taking this for a year. Ibuta, please feel free to correct any of my pronunciations. Ibuta Morin no. uh, been taking this for two months. Omnitrope again. Um, test CYP 0.6 CC per week. Yeah, that De that's testosterone. Yeah. Deca 0.6 CC per week. Been taking this for three weeks. Okay. Windstraw, Windstraw, fifty milligrams per day. Yeah, I don't, I don't know all the 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 gear names and stuff like that. Yeah. So I will say, just for anyone listening, so there's no confusion. Okay, there is a huge, huge, huge burst of rando men's health testosterone anti aging clinics that pop up where you roll in, they give you give them money, they declare you testosterone deficient. Mainly, you tell them you're tired and every now and then, or you have less fatigue or well, you know, your erections aren't what they used to be, and they just write you for testosterone blindly. Um, testosterone is not a harmless thing, okay? It is very useful in certain cases, in certain doses, and all sorts of stuff, but it is not completely harmless. If you are someone who is predestined to have some, pro you know, some testosterone-sensitive uh, prostate cancers, you can blow yourself up and kill you. Separate from that, testosterone increases blood production. You can give yourself strokes if you're not monitoring your, your blood counts effectively by taking testosterone that's not appropriate for you. 
every 45 and 50-year-old person in, in the Americas should not necessarily have the testosterone level of a juiced-up 19-year-old. Like, that's not necessarily how we were meant to live. You don't need to do that to yourself. Just exercise and eat right, y'all. <laughs> like, and if you have legitimate testosterone deficiency, cool, man. Go get your meds. Or if you're going to do stuff that you don't like, necessarily even need, I mean, whatever. If you find someone willing to do that to you, okay. But like, just don't think it's harmless. Please do monitoring yeah. and try and keep yourself safe. It is not risk-free. There you go. That's the end of my rant. I just thought, like, this is the least shocking revelation in the history of revelations. Like, what? The Liver King's not all natty? Listeners, I, if you haven't ever seen him, go go look him up. I mean, you're going to look at him and be like, well, yeah, this isn't news. Of course. Of course this dude is on all the sauce. Well, well what's funny, I mean, uh, you know, I saw Joe Rogan openly accuse him, and not even subtly. He was just like, this guy's absolutely using it. I'm calling it right now. There's no chance he's not. Um, yeah. But but when you look at his physique, you know, every now and then in the UFC, there's someone whose physique is just next level, like Yal Romero or somebody like that. Like, it just doesn't make sense how much different they look than everybody else. But, but you know, Liver King has a physique where if he walked into a UFC ring, people would be like, nah, he's cheating. Yeah. He doesn't look totally dissimilar from... Uh, macho man playing bone saw in the OG Spider-Man movie. <laughs> you know what? He's bone saw. That, that's what it yeah. is. Uh, he's, uh, so he's bone the, saw. the real lesson here, boys and girls is not to trust everything you see on social media, just like Abraham Lincoln told yeah. us. And I will generally recommend that, um, raw organ meats are not necessarily a great idea. Um, just, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know that that cow pancreas sushi is really a wonderful plan. Oi. So, yeah, that's, I, it, that's it, It's an interesting shtick, at least. Um, and he's always oh, got, like, but, the Viking hat on and yelling more and doing ridiculous things. It, yeah. You know what really annoyed me? And whatever, right? Like, I think the listeners understand who I am and what I'm about at this point. Um, I, you know, I wasn't, like, all about... Uh, the queen's funeral and stuff in England because we fought a war to not have to care about that. But she did seem like a nice old lady that served her people well. So I recognize the sadness in that. And I recognize the sense of loss that the British people uh, may have been feeling, the ones that didn't just think she was a colonizer. Uh, and, but, dude, like, he was over there during that time. I don't think he specifically went, like, after she died. But he's over there. And he's, like, in these crowds of British mourners doing his whole stick and acting a fool. I'm like, bro... Read the room, man. He went Let to the he went to the funeral procession. I don't think he was at the funeral procession. I saw him like inside, like in a crowd that was outside what was probably the gates at like Buckingham Palace at one point. It, it was just, like it was just very uncouth. It was again not super shocking no. uh, from this dude, but no, uh, it's, it's not the time. Yeah. It's not the time. Um, and no. so, just listeners, fear not. Uh, to the extent that you might even care, I'm not doing the Liver King version of of Carnivore. <laughs> He's the Liver King is not my source on this, nor um, my inspiration. And I will say, all medical opinions aside, uh, I don't care. I think the guy's hilarious. Yeah, <laughs> and I will no, still it, follow him on on Instagram. <laughs> yeah, entertainment value, sure. Go. If for the it. Liver King's ever in town and he wants to have a drink, I'll buy the Liver King a beer and we'll sit down and talk because I think he's hilarious. <laughs> 
Uh, and any disclaimers you need to give before we go? You're not anybody's doctor who's listening. None of this was medical yeah, I, advice. Yeah, none of it's that. medical advice. Talk just... to your own doctor. Uh, all my own opinions. If you ever figure out what my name is, uh, not the opinions of my uh, my employers, my partners, any business affiliations I have, or the U.S. Army or the military. Um, we're just we're just chatting. There I don't think I don't think we referenced last time that this was a a nom de plume that this was uh well it is what it is <laughs> yeah now uh but your your status may, may change here in the coming future i might have uh, a different name in a few months <laughs> yeah <laughs> next so, recording uh which i think will make our podcast episodes even more interesting with you than they than they already are they might nobody, be nobody has yet received the full dr panting that's all i'm saying I, I, I have told a couple people that um, I'm like, you know, there's a different guy. coming. <laughs> so the the reality is like, and I, you know, we, we can get into this maybe when it comes to fruition, we can talk about it on the podcast yeah. a little bit more, but uh, some of these, these practices, like the, the one you're in, not unlike law practices, you're not just an employee or somebody working there or the doctor running the office. It's a partnership. And odds are that the next time we hear from you, you will be a partner and maybe not so restrictive in sharing your various viewpoints and opinions here on the yeah. podcast. Yeah, you know, uh, it, 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 you got you to gotta do what you got to do. <laughs> I mean, listeners, I'm telling you, there was all kinds of fun potential stuff on the show notes list uh, where uh, Dr. Banting's comment was just, yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. When when Kale has a thing with you, he sends you a show prep list, and it says, uh, you know, hey, here's some topics, whatever. And I just wrote nope next to about yeah. seven of them. Nope, <laughs> like nope, nah. not nope, not going near that. And for the record, those nopes are probably not changing. <laughs> There's a number of topics you'll never catch uh, me recorded no, talking about. There's at least one of these I know I can get opinion on from you. I know uh, it. I know it. We'll see. We'll see. But, I'm not uh, sure I know what one that is. Identify uh, to me later. It might be. Either way. Either way. Next uh, next podcast. Hopefully. Maybe. We'll see. Depends yeah, on how far that, that is. Well, dude, this was a blast. Appreciate, appreciate you as always. We definitely did an entire medical episode despite the intention not to do so. Uh, but uh, it's fun. Okay. I'm going to go watch USA. Hopefully, hopefully we do a kick against Iran. We'll see how that worked. All right. I'd say text me when you're done, but I'm going to bed, brother. I understand. Have a nice day. Oh. But uh, listeners, we appreciate you. We we love you. Uh, do us a favor. Stop by the website if you haven't already. Solid7podcast.com. Solid, the number seven podcast.com, where you can find links to the latest episodes of the podcast, links to uh, all of our affiliates, Go Ruck, Origin, Jocko Fuel, Tuttle Twins, uh, great ways to support the podcast. You can buy us a Jocko Go, which is always a, a great way to go. All of our social media is on there. Uh, and you can even become a Patreon supporter, get yourself some bonus content, occasionally listen in live to the recordings, chat with us, all kinds of cool stuff for the Patreon supporters. But at the very, very least, if you would, click the subscribe button here on the podcast. Uh, give us a review, five star, thumbs up, heart, whatever your app lets you do. All that stuff tells the algorithms that we're worth telling other people about. And with that... That's it. That's all we got for you this Liver week. King out. <laughs> We're out. <laughs> the Solid 7 Podcast is fueled by Jocko Go. Engineered for anyone who wants to get after it in life, pre-meeting, pre-testing, pre-negotiation, or pre-mission. If you're looking for an extra cognitive or physical edge, Jocko Go is your force multiplier. With 95 milligrams of caffeine and zero sugar, 
the keto-friendly Jocko Go will give you a physical and cognitive boost without the crash that you experience with average energy drinks. Visit JockoFuel.com today, and you can use our promo code SOLID7, that's S-O-L-I-D-7, to get 10% off your order. Get on the path and get after it. Oh, and because lawyers exist, these statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration, and this product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. (laughs) 